our first episode of the podcast. What in the hell? And our final episode, we'll be introducing the Academy Academy and talking about a little lady called Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> that would be so weird if we did this, if we just started over again. And next week, we we're covering Olympus Has Fallen. We just go backwards. This was we're meeting in the middle right now. I, I, you know, I didn't want to say anything before you brought this up, but I have noticed every time I, uh, you know, edit this uh, podcast on GarageBand, uh, it goes from right to left. Yeah, little yeah. clock. It's you know, it's, mm. it's, uh, I made it this way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you made GarageBand this what, way. How sad! How sad if we were living like. If we're at the end of this movie and and some people podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're just sitting here on this just two assholes in their pajamas on a zoom screen <laughs> that, that makes that makes tilda swinton swim so much more extraordinary hello and welcome to the award-winning podcast the academy academy the show that discovers the absolute undeniable and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. Oh, I do declare I was podcasting under peculiar circumstances. <laughs> My name is Patrick Beauregard uh, Merriweather Button. And would someone pass me a fan? It is so hot in here. Welcome <laughs> to the Academy and welcome again to You Want It Darker, the David Fincher story. This week we are covering The Curious Case of Benjamin Button from mm-hmm. 2008. We will be spoiling this film dramatically. Oh yeah, spoilies. Spoilies, but, oh boy. Uh, the spoiler is is that we uh, the end of this movie is, uh, is all of our ends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not spoiling much. You're like... not spoiling much. <laughs> yeah, you know what happens in life? Uh, do it in reverse. There if, you go. If, movie spoiled. If, yeah, if you are... Uh, <laughs> if you feel that's a spoiler, I might... Michael Caine, tip of the cat to you for living this long without realizing that. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. Get out of here. Uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button is currently on Paramount Plus, Showtime, also on Blu-ray, and can be rented through the normal services. Uh, Patrick, did you watch this on uh, Amazon Prime, Paramount Plus? kind of? Oh, I watched it on Paramount Plus, baby. The home of the offer. Mm, indeed. Mm. Um, I watched it. I'm holding it up. My Criterion Collection, now out of print, Ooh. Blu-ray. Um Apparently, the Blu-ray that's out now is just a regular kind of standard edition from Paramount, which is disappointing because this Blu-ray is utterly stacked. And it's a true um, film. Like they have described some of these things, the film school on disc. Um, There is a amazing commentary track from David Fincher, as well as a hours longer than the movie itself documentary about every detail. On how they put this move, this extraordinary. I mean, we can talk about kind of the dramatically different reactions to this movie in a little bit, but one thing everyone I think can agree on is that this is a technical marvel. Yeah. And what they put together in this movie is even 15 years later, a kind of jaw dropping experience just of it, kind of movie magic. 
it is like I feel like David Fincher is one of those directors. Um, obviously, he yeah, pretty much only directs uh, technical mar- marvels. But what yeah. I love about him is he's like um, he's like Ridley Scott in the sense that like it feels like his movie releases are never stingy with the bonus features. No, no, he's um, you know, made it clear this one is one of his uh, you know, the biggest ones, and it's so interesting. So I think we've mentioned this before. His special feature guy, the guy who does all who did all of these, is a guy named David Pryor who went on to direct the empty man a couple of years ago the oh i if any empty man heads out there like me like it's it's a sink that's a singular fucking movie and (laughs) but it feels very fincherian the two that is like when you watch that is that is so cool that like he has like a because i know fincher's the type of person that always um he rehires the same people it's kind of like a a close-knit group i didn't even realize he had a uh a special features guy that he's was just a, his guy. He's got a behind the scenes guy who puts these to who has done who I don't think does it for him anymore because he's moved on to directing larger right. things. Um, but at least through these earlier films, I think uh, most of them certainly this wow. one, the Zodiac set, the social network set, and so forth. And it's um, apparently too, I went to see a QA on The Empty Man. The Empty Man came out in the midst of covid it's a two hour and 10 minute horror movie so it's a little confusing mm-hmm. but those of us who saw the 135 minute runtime for a horror movie we're like whoa that's very intriguing because like what what is this what is the deal and that just kind of leads you down the empty man rabbit hole but um i saw a q a with him and you know did no business he went straight to vod there is still not a disc release of it get out of here but he did say he received a phone call from david fincher congratulating him on the movie and saying that he liked it and he said that it will find its way don't worry like and it has good yeah so he's still got a bro best bro for life in david fincher um i also saw too a friend of the show graham high shared an instagram post from that formula one thing that came that oh. happened a couple weeks ago in Vegas. Oh. Guess who went together? Our boys Brad Pitt and David Fincher went as buds to go Ooh. watch the Formula One race. The two friends. Dude, yeah. It's it's like, it's so, I to be a fly on the wall with one of their hangs. Oh, boy. Like, who knows? Like, yeah, who I want to know. Yeah. But I think, like, I think at the end of the day, because Fincher casts this Kubrickian pallor over cinema, he's kind of just a bro when he's hanging out with the guys, I think. Like, he doesn't, like, sit there in the dark staring at them or something like that. I think, yeah, he, he's, I think he can I, hang. I think he, you can watch a Laker game with him and, you know, it would be a very normal experience. Yeah, I feel like he's less... Yeah, he comes off to me, and maybe it's because... Um, He's not as precious as some yeah. other directors with their ideas. Like, I feel like, yeah, he doesn't come off as much of a brooder to me as, say, like a, hmm, I'm trying to think of a good, maybe like a Scorsese. I feel like Scorsese probably I don't think, Yeah, I think like Scorsese, it's like these projects, like you watch Killers of Flower Moon or you watch Silence and you feel it's like he's like gutting himself Yeah, to make these things. Mm-hmm. I think Fincher just wants to make something well. Yeah, he's like he's like Ridley and in that regard. He is, but I also think, and this is what a good, nice, interesting segue here. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. There's a lot more, like we we're kind of talking about with Tony Scott. There's a lot more under the surface on these movies that's personal, that is coming from the mm. gut. And I think that the quest for perfection, the quest for answers, and then the troubling fact that it's all kind of, it might all kind of be a cosmic joke. Ooh. is maybe his obsession that if yeah. you look at zodiac the you know no answer really but all the way to he's still struggling if you the folks that will cover it in a few months but folks out there who have seen the killer the killer is kind of about the quest for perfection being a cosmic joke and but the killer treats it as comedy whereas today's film treats it maybe as tragedy <laughs> it's you know yeah this is and, not a comedy yeah, this is not a light movie. Um, this is so... It is the curious case of Benjamin Button, of course, began over 100 years ago with the public... May 27th, 2020, 1922 publication of the short story The Curious Case of Benjamin Button by F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes. Yeah. And um, so this was... There's a 2019 stage musical. Just learned that. Mm. Fuck, they pull that off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm old and now I'm young. Yeah, and this came out three years before The Great Gatsby, but kind of at the beginning of Fitzgerald's run of kind of being the, let's call it, poet laureate of the jazz age. Gotcha. And, And it's a, his short story basically... You know, we know the general concept. It's about a man who ages in reverse from old age to infancy. Fitzgerald's is more as kind of, if you've read any of his work, it is kind of a study of people of that time in a very specific way and kind of rich people of that time. Fitzgerald's takes place in Baltimore. Benjamin Button is born in 1860 rather than 1919. As he is in the movie. And he's born into a very rich family. And he stays with that family. And he kind of, he gets <laughs> married. But then he like runs away from his family to like join the Harvard football team. Because he's, you know, because that's where his body's at. It's a little more of um satirical almost. Or a little more of like a, a critical. Like it's a little hard. Like it's not as... um. Certainly not sentimental. Right. It seems a little more, it seems less serious. It's, and if you, if you've read it, I mean, it's 20 pages long, 20, Mm -hmm. 30 pages long tops. And it's, it's, it, it's outside of its premise. It would probably be, you know, not to be some like literary major that I am minor Fitzgerald. (laughs) I I would say, but, but, the concept does kind of scream Hollywood. The idea mm-hmm. is because it is like it's kind of like a high concept. Oh, for sure. I can you see know? like, the, yeah, it's funny when you brought up musical. I can 100% see like some weird 50s 
or even like a one of those like late sixties Doolittle esque garish musicals that were like way over budget, starring yeah. Richard Burton. I could see something like that being and about a Benjamin inter- Button. Interestingly enough, the first person to hold the rights to it was a producer named Ray Stark, who produced things like West Side Story. Oh, and like big, you know, big, you know, big Hollywood productions, baby. Right? You know? Oh yeah, like big Holly- Hollywood, a Hollywood man. Um, oh. And it was optioned in the mid-80s by Universal Pictures. The initial crew. Mm-hmm. So this went through a lot of hands to get mm-hmm. to where it was, but I think it ended up in the right place. We'll get to that, though. Um, the original choice to direct was one Miss Piggy himself, Frank Oz. Oh, hell yeah. Very funny story about on the movie The Score that Frank Oz did with Marlon Brando, where Marlon Brando literally called him Miss Piggy. The entire shoot very Ooh. disrespectful and dark oh, God. <laughs> yeah very grim <laughs> marlin in his later years was Ooh. cheeky that's a nice way of saying very polite way of saying it be despite his reputation as the greatest actor of all time someone you wanted to avoid on any film set yeah as someone, as someone, as someone who has seen that documentary <laughs> on the the quote-unquote making of the island of dr moreau yeah. Yeah, yeah. You see that? You're a little, yeah, a little tough. <laughs> but, the, but the best part about that entire making of Island of Doctor Moreau is how difficult he is, and yet he's still not worse than Val Kilmer, which yes. is like yeah, insane, that, yeah, ludicrous. Like, yeah, because like Marlon Brando hires a little person to like. To... He's rewriting. Yeah, yeah, it's like Mini Me was anyway, inspired anyway. by his actions. So fascinating. So. Frank Oz to direct Martin Short as Benjamin Button. So clearly they are going in more of a kind of humor, humorous, just based on direction with that. Oh, for sure. I'm not going to lie. Like, this is, it, it wouldn't have been as good as the movie we're about to discuss, but I am eminently curious. Like, that is fat. I love the idea of a Martin Short Although I Frank also kind of like him playing it straight, I think that would be very interesting too. I don't, oh. you know, I think it would be really, really interesting. Because like Martin Short has that in him; he can be well, he's, like he's such a talented guy. I mean, yeah. and he's so good in inner space. Like, and he plays like a relatively normal human being in that. The um, all right, one last tangent before we can okay. that article <laughs> talking that came out that was like a hit piece on Martin Short, like. Two get months ago, get out of here! Get Man, out. In the... Whoever wrote that, put him in jail. <laughs> okay, I what got the article did? in my hand. I'm <laughs> crumpling it up. Trash can. I'm, I'm, excuse me, I need to go use the bathroom with that article because I ran out of toilet paper. <laughs> Come on, man. Like, of all people to write a hit piece on Martin Short, there are like so many people in the world that you can choose. Like, Martin Short seems to have done nothing wrong to anyone ever. Like as far as I can tell, like, like I think like his biggest everyone, sin is everyone occasion- who's ever worked with him seems to think you find him delightful. <laughs> literally, his biggest sin is sometimes he's like a little annoying as yeah. Jimmy Glick, which I is know. like the point of that fucking character. I know. Come on, dude. <laughs> like, anyway, we would have. It would have been interesting. I don't think it would have been kind of. I think it probably would have ended up like a movie like Inner Space, where you kind of like. Watch it on HBO Max. Yeah, exactly. thirty years later. Oh, that was kind of fun, yeah, and that's kind of you know. And I, you know, Inner Space 
pretty fun. Good movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, and it's like it'll be like it'd be one of those things too, where like, oh yeah, the makeup for its time was really cool. Yeah. Oh, I. I and you, there'd definitely be people like us being like, I wish I sure miss practical effects. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, I would a hundred percent be one of those. I'd be like, oh yeah, man. man, remember when we made movies? movies? Yeah, I know. Um, but that didn't happen because Oz could not figure out how to make the story work. This is a kind of a long-term thing with this is breaking the story based on a outside of the idea deeply like not movie 30 page short story. Yeah. It's like you a know? cool idea. That's really how much there is yeah. to it. It's like a cool idea. And so how to... and the question of how kind of attached to you are are you to the story mm-hmm. beyond the idea and the title? Because the title is also really great. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, like it's really cool. Like you're immediately like, I want to know what that is, even yeah, if you don't the, know it. Yeah, like curious case. Chat. Like it's like, and it adds to kind of like the the kind of fable myth kind of feel of the this final project. It like, oh yeah, the, you can't think of a different title because it's like after you watch it because you kind of feel that way after the movie's over. Wow, that really was kind of a curious case. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. That's rather it's, curious. Not to be kind of like cheesy, but yeah. So then in um 1991, the film was optioned. And this this pairing makes uh, quite a bit more sense. Steven Spielberg with Tom Cruise. Ooh. This I... in 1991, this feels this feels like right down the plate. Like a, yeah. like you could see this. Like that could have been good. Yeah, I think um I don't know I if mean, it'd be this movie, but it'd be I don't think it wouldn't be this movie because I don't think Spielberg would I don't think he's as fatalistic. No. And I think it would have been a little more quote unquote magical. Yes, a hundred percent magical. Yeah. It would have like, had that yeah. it would have had that Amblin touch to it. But mm-hmm. also I think like and I've actually never seen this movie, but um around that same time he made that movie always. Oh, about, I've never yeah, that's like a weird like um that's one of the I, lesser spiels. Always been considered like one of his like least movies. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've never seen it. But now that I'm getting down to like the dregs of like I've seen every Spielberg movie, it's like yeah. now it's like getting like very high on my list of movies to see. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like that and the uh, yeah, uh, Duel are the only well, two left. <laughs> the Tintin movie or some, Duel I've watched twice this year, so that doesn't count. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, Duel rules. Got your, you got your you got your dual card. <laughs> a big punched. dual head, big dual head here. Um, <laughs> So, but they Spielberg eventually left the project to, uh, to you know, in 1993 to direct his 1993 one-two punch Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. That is crazy. Those are no, like two movies. No, no, uh, no slouch himself. <laughs> yeah, that I way. Like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> well, he's got it. Whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just like, whoa, what a 1993 that guy <laughs> yeah don't hey don't mix those two movies up ever you make the biggest movie of the year and i'm gonna win best picture and director <laughs> like with a like two classics yeah it is like, like yeah it's like the closest is soderbergh right with traffic and brockovich yeah and even that it's like none of them reach the scale of those two movies yeah it, it, maybe traffic think... traffic's close i guess but even that it's like no i think like yeah that's the best the best year a director's ever had. I'll just say yeah. that right now. Yeah, 1993 Maybe, yeah. Spielberg, 
best year directors ever had. It's pretty that's uh, Hall of Fame numbers. <laughs> yeah, so. that's good year. That's some Babe Ruth right there. So, um, Ray Stark eventually sold the rights to the producers Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, who took the film to Paramount Pictures with Universal still as a co-partner. Um, this was by '94. They're talking about making the film in Baltimore, which, of course, where the short story took place. Mm-hmm. The kind of new setting didn't come till much, much later. October of 1998, our next step. Screenwriter Robin Swickord begins work on the film, and she ends up with a um, a credit on this finalized version, story by credit. Oh wow! So the pieces are beginning to come together in mm. kind of how this movie is structured and designed. October of 98, though, the director is now Ron Howard. <laughs> Which, another, like, he seems like on the surface, this is a good, you know, kind of yeah. in his wheelhouse as well. And of course. of course, in October of 1998, who is who is now Benjamin Button? John Travolta. Whoa! <laughs> Which I like, I like. I like that too. <laughs> like, <laughs> Interesting. I, I'm, that's fascinating, Mister. I, I, that I feel like that tracks because I feel like in the late '90s, Travolta it's, had a couple button-esque roles. Uh, yeah, you could look at a movie like in particular Phenomenon. Yeah, and Michael, where he's yep, the fallen very, angel, very buttony. Movie. Very bunny, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, it feels right. It feels he right. That's a bunny and, cloth. I like um, one thing I like about John Travolta is he got kind of like even in his like late sixties he kind of has this like boyish naivete yeah. innocence about him which he which I MP. which I would have you seen that thing where he's this like disco Santa the commercials that he's in right now no it's a treat uh, oh no it's the opposite of a treat oh no if you're if you're Mister you're Saw. Mr. Saw, would you like to play a game, Saw Man? <laughs> if you're the thing, <laughs> Jigsaw, you love it. Jigsaw, Jigsaw. Yeah, up is down to that guy. For, for movie fans, that's his game. So you just put this on. You remember this guy? You love this guy? This is what he's now doing. <laughs> this was the star of Urban Cowboy. The star of Blowout. The star <laughs> of Pulp Fiction is now. Take my eyes, Mister Saw. Is now revisiting his performance in Saturday Night Fever, but oh, as Santa Claus. And anyone oh. who has seen Saturday Night Fever, Saturday Night Fever is one of the darkest, ugliest movies ever made. It's like a '70s New York movie about an asshole, but because it's got that soundtrack, everybody thinks it's a good time. Like, it's a great movie. It actually is a great movie. Yeah. So, but that fell apart again. So by May of the year 2000, screenwriter mm-hmm. Jim Taylor, Alexander Payne's Whoa. partner. All these characters. Hired, yeah, hired to adapt it once again. And guess who is hired to direct this variation? Spike Jones. What in the hell? Yeah. <laughs> and of course... Because he's Spike Jones, guess who he brings in to write a draft of the script? Charlie oh Kaufman. <laughs> so let's go. But by June of 2003, Spike is out, Kaufman's out, Taylor is out, and the new director is Gary Ross, who directed Pleasantville. 
That's among not, other I, films. I'm not and, like mad with that. No, a very solid director. I like Gary. Yeah, with a screenplay penned by Eric Roth. Mm. One of these things lasts, and of course, it's Eric Roth as screenwriter. And in the May of 2004, David Fincher enters negotiations to direct the film. Yeah. Four Eric Roth late. might be the most successful screenwriter in Hollywood right now, right? Boy, I mean, like, let's, we can, uh, for listeners who don't know his track record, most recently, Killers of the Flower Moon. Before that, he is a credited screenwriter on Dune, A Star is Born, the Bradley Cooper one, Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close, which was nominated for Best Picture, the Jonathan uh, Safran Four book. Uh, the Good Shepherd, the Robert De Niro spy movie. He wrote, he's a writer on Munich with Tony Kushner for Spielberg. He's a writer on both The Insider and Ali for Michael Mann. And probably though his breakthrough, oh, and he's a producer and we, we will talk about it in a few weeks. He's a producer on Mank. And I think not credited, but I would assume he stepped in and maybe did some polishing on that screenplay. And that's how he got that producer credit. Mm. They didn't want to take away the sole screenwriting credit for David Fincher's late father, but that script he wrote and then he died. And then 10 years later, they made the movie. So there's some, probably some adjustments to be made. (laughs) So anyway, but Probably the script that will be on in Eric Roth's obituary headline is Forrest Gump, Mm. which was his breakthrough script. He won the Academy Award for that. And a movie that looms large over this movie. It's kind of unavoidable, even if you are a big fan of this movie, is the structures, at the very least, are very similar. I'm going to make an admittance right now. I I know about Forrest Gump because, like, if you live, if you're born on this earth in the year of our Lord, 1991, like, you're just going to absorb Forrest Gump knowledge. Like, mm-hmm. I, I I know the plot of the movie. No, I know every... You've never uh, seen Forrest Gump, though. Have you never uh, seen it? I've never seen it. I've never seen Forrest Gump. Boy, okay, we should... Uh... <laughs> Should we, should we watch have a Forrest Gump, Gump together? Should we, should we do a Gump off? Should Gump we do a Gump off? <laughs> Some kind of Gump off? <laughs> I haven't seen it a little. I okay. So I, as we've mentioned many a time on this show, I've got about a decade on Patrick. So in 1994, when Forrest Gump came out, I was 12 and very aware of Gump Gump mania, Gump fever, Gump the nation. I was also a um. It, would it surprise anyone? An adamant and vocal fan of Pulp Fiction, which came out the same year. And when it came down to those two bad boys at the Academy Awards, I was rooting for Mr. Quentin Tarantino. But yeah, as you should have. But Forrest Gump is like we watched him in my history class in high school, which is insane. <laughs> Keep that in mind for if we ever watch this movie together, Patrick. But the difference is, I think, yes, they're structurally they are designed in the same way we have a man Mm -hmm. telling their kind of extraordinary life story through 
like in an episodic nature. Mm -hmm. uh, the differences, though, are, I think, pretty extreme. And I think that comes down to what the director's intentions were, Robert Zemeckis's intentions versus David Fincher's. Robert Zemeckis's is kind of a boomer nostalgia is a big part. But mm -hmm. they are also like the other thing about it, they are technical marvels for what they were at their time. You know, Forrest Gump remains. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, but he he meets Lyndon Johnson and Kennedy. Oh, yeah. And like he's like, um, but it, it, the way he invests in Apple early or whatever. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. It, so he's kind of this zealot figure through all of these major pop cultural moments that are very, very important to the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. You know, he he's, goes to he goes to Vietnam. He's at the March on Washington. He's like, he's at all of these things that Gump, what really, are you doing there? really matter. But I, actually, it's a weirdly conservative movie that um, is kind of condemning the hippies and like all of that. Ooh, interesting. I think you like. I really want to know what you think of it because you're coming in with these like really fresh eyes on it. I'd be so curious because it's like. It's such like, like Jen was telling me her little brother didn't like just put it together that the restaurant Bubba Gump Shrimp Factory was based on a movie. And I'm like, here's the deal, man. How many movies, how many middle t middle brow Oscar bait movies spawned a massive restaurant chain? That's how big this movie was. <laughs> this deeply, yeah, yeah. There aren't like, there's no place called Fermi's, you know, inspired yeah. by the firm. Yeah. Or like meat Joe Black cheeseburgers and ribs. <laughs> cheeseburgers you know. and ribs. And peanut butter. Like a... Peanut butter. And peanut butter. Oh yeah, my god, yeah. Yeah, yeah, every, peanut, every... yeah. Something with peanut butter on the side. Yeah. Maybe a peanut butter burger. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how big it was. And it like mm -hmm. swept the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. You know, picture director, actor, and screenwriter for Eric Roth. And Eric Roth has kind of been a, like, um, giant ever since. And he works with, clearly, I mean, I mean, we're talking Spielberg, Mann, Fincher, Scorsese, Villeneuve, the O2 or Bradley Cooper, you know, down the line. Mm -hmm. He's, and, like, oh, and his next film, which comes out in 2024, is a film called Here, which is a full-scale Forrest Gump reunion. Zemeckis oh. is directing, and Hanks and Robin Wright are in it. Interesting. Yeah. And, and Robin, frankly, Robin. I'm excited for that movie. <laughs> I like it. And the the I got it. the premise is the story covers the events of a single room and its inhabitants spanning from past well into the future. Ooh. All right. But so. It sounds like it's going to be as like a, you know, you know, big ass like Benjamin Button Force Gump style movie. You know? like, yeah, I'm I'm so I'm a hundred percent down for like Zemeckis, uh, kind of toiling away in on the technical yeah side I mean, of things. He's a fascinating director. I think he got. I think like there's a balancing act, and I think Fincher plays it off well, being a little too obsessed with the technical side, mm -hmm. losing yourself to it. I don't think I think Fincher. The glorious thing about David Fincher, mm -hmm. I think, is that all of the technical stuff is in service of the goal of story. Mm -hmm. It isn't an end to itself, as I think folks like Zemeckis, 
Ang Lee, Peter Jackson have kind of gotten a little lost in. Yeah, yeah. You look at a movie like Gemini Man, and on one level, it is like kind of insane what Ang Lee does with a lot of those yeah. effects. But it's also like, yeah, what is this in service uh, of? What's the point? And that's, I think, the difference because I think every one of the Fincher ones where he's using these like both visible and invisible effects to like huge levels and really cutting in shit. Mm-hmm. He doesn't show it. It's never really shown off. Like even in this movie, which is his most effect. All of his movies are shockingly into effects heavy. Mm-hmm. Like even the social network of the killer have more effects than you would ever imagine, but he hides them. Yeah. And even in this one though, which the miraculous thing about watching it i get so lost in it that the uncanny valley stuff doesn't like even like even all these years later like it has no like it just part it just washes over me i don't you know there's no moment like de niro curb stomping that guy in the irishman that you're like oh this is an old man with a weird face like (laughs) there is no element of that and we'll get into some of the effects stuff shortly here, but mm-hmm. you know, as we mentioned, this is the story of a man aging in reverse. Starts in 1919, ends in um, when was Hurricane uh, August of 2005. Uh, yeah, is the end of the movie. So this spans, you know, 20th century, basically. And we meet. In August 2005, Daisy Fuller, who is on her deathbed, in, she is an elderly woman on her deathbed in New Orleans Hospital. Uh, and she's kind of there, kind of not. Mm-hmm. There's also this element, how reliable is she as a narrator, which is kind of interesting. That just crossed my mind. <laughs> um, but it's how, but it's it, it turns into, she's not telling the entire story because she has a book with her this diary and she asks her daughter Caroline who's sitting there with her to read it and it turns out this is the diary of an interesting man <laughs> basically <laughs> I guess would be the best way to put it yeah. uh, by the name of Benjamin Button um, and he is born November of 1918 mm-hmm. at the end and it's very pointed and very important to note it's the end of World War One. Yes, is when it, and the the um, World War One haunts kind of war itself haunts this movie to an you know and kind of the those that were lost senselessly in a way and before we get into the diary let's talk about the kind of cold I hesitate to call it a cold open but a um, Kind of a parable that yeah. opens the, that Daisy tells her daughter before we get into Benjamin's diary, which is the which is a short film in its own right. It's like a cinematic amuse bouche before the entree. Yeah, and boy, <laughs> the the chef is serving us up a very tasty menu if this is how it starts. Because <laughs> we get the story of blind clockmaker Mister Ghetto. That rules. Which, Already off to a good start. I know. I know. It's like it's just magical. Like I hate you know the word. It's like it's just like it throws you in, and you're like, this is so odd and different, and just like it, 
and it's different like cuz gump was linear mm -hmm. and this movie bounces this movie is not necessarily and mr gatto is hired to make a clock for the train station um in 1918 and simultaneous so he's he's the best clock maker in all of the land yeah. and simultaneous to that he has a wife and a son mm -hmm. and his son is goes to war in world war one and is killed and obviously anyone you don't have to be a parent it's horrible it's terrible and it and Gatto throws himself completely into making his clock, and when it it's unveiled at the train station, even Teddy Roosevelt was there, which gives it even this more like fable mythological feel to it. Oh yeah! And when the clock is unveiled, the clock is running backwards, and what he basically says is that he is hoping it's a symbol of the desire to turn back time to get their boys back for more his first and foremost in his story. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. Oh, and yeah. Mr. Uh, Mr. Gateau, by the way, portrayed by Elias well, Cotius. One uh, Academy Academy fave. Oh, I yeah. think, hit, you know, I think that that's not a controversial statement. We love this guy. Like he every was. time he shows up, uh, our favorite, of course, we mentioned in the Zodiac episode is the thin red line. And I think he's, um, he can play bad guys really well. I mean, shooter, clearly, mm -hmm. but, um, He's got such a sadness to his face. Yeah. That I like him. And I like and this kind of reminds me of Thinner in Line how much he like he does not want to send those boys to hell in Thin Red Line. And with Nick Nolte scream, God damn it, Stavros! 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 And he gets uh, he gets demoted because he won't do it, and he's looked at as a coward by his superiors. But they do that shot of all the young men looking at him when he's and they the look on their face like "Thank you so much, Dad," is what it's it's like for not killing us. Like, thank you for saving us from evil uncle. Yeah, and so he does it so well. And this this part, Mister Gatto, which is short and small, and but he is the star of this this sequence. Mm -hmm. Is so memorable because he's such a powerful actor and he does so much in this brief, basically cameo appearance for all intents and purposes. Um, they do this wonderful shot, that unforgettable shot, where he runs the film backwards in this World War One sequence where the soldiers are rising up from their charge. Like, like, like meat is going back into people's heads from where they were shot. It's very, yeah, like, it's, affecting. It's really, really, it's like... And there, it's one of like ten dozen <laughs> images <laughs> in this movie that are like completely unforgettable. I would say, <laughs> but I wanted to um, briefly mention too. So apparently, there is a 1919 movie called Jacuzzi by the French filmmaker Abogance, in which this ri soldiers rising from the dead sequence is based off of. Mm -hmm. um, I've not seen that movie, but it's cool. Regardless, and want to give that one a kind of note that as an influence on this. So, after the clock is unveiled, Mr. Gatto disappears, and you get the second goddamn gorgeous shot of the sequence where he's rowing his boat off into the sea yeah, by himself. I love that. And it's like, and he's gone, and that's it. 
And you're like, oh, wow, what I like. This movie is different is basically because they're running these like. The episode, so this movie is episodic, but the episodes in this movie are so kind of eerie and melancholy and fable like fables in their yeah. own right that it doesn't feel like oh it's Forrest Gump bumping into the fucking Beatles or something like that oh, like that's it, it yeah you know it it's so much more like um it's, it feels less gimmicky and it, like it. yeah when i what i appreciate about fincher is he doesn't um yeah he never gets indulgent with those, because there could have been a version of this movie where Button goes yeah. to all these crazy places. And Benjamin meets... Button goes to Hollywood, and all of a sudden, you know, he's he's friends with Paul Newman or something, yeah. know, something like he's that. A, yeah, he's friends with, that's like the one famous person he meets is Paul Newman. Yeah, I know. Um, I don't know why that came to mind, but I was like, yeah, I like, was like, because I was thinking, like, oh, all of a sudden, Benjamin Button is like one of the guys in prison in Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. <laughs> he's like hanging out with George Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like it's like oh, they pan across. There's George Kennedy. There's Harry Dean Stanton. There's Benjamin Button. <laughs> that would be. I mean, I would love to if they did like a because I know that's like like I said, haven't seen Forrest Gump, but like you absorb enough information where you know that they'll like CGI insert Gump into like yeah. all sorts of things. It'd be really funny to see Benjamin Button just like CGI'd into the background of the egg eating scene. Yeah, I know, I know. And thank God they didn't. No, but, thank God. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. But I mean, it's there. So yeah. we cut to the voiceover narration now taken over by with the Southern draw of Benjamin yes. Button, uh, who button. in this movie is, of course, and we should note our two leads. So you can't really tell because the age, because one thing I really, really, David Fincher uses the best tools at his that he can't he doesn't force anything so this movie is also an extraordinary achieve not only an extraordinary achievement of the most modern technical cgi mm-hmm. the old school makeup effects are just as great in their own right because i couldn't tell that that was fucking kate blanchett no way <laughs> yeah, under the older yeah no yeah. <laughs> like under all that makeup like it is great. It looks well, amazing. Yeah, I mean, like, one thing I think about Fincher is what makes him so cool is that, like, he wants to be the best. Like, he wants to make the yeah. perfect movie, and he wants to do whatever it takes to make the perfect movie. And so, as a result, he'll utilize the most up-to-date extreme techniques to achieve that. But because but... he wants to make the perfect movie, he's never going to put the techniques he won't be showy about it which i just like yeah i sincerely I appreciate that he took a hard look at cgi aging mm-hmm. for her and he might actually use that today too maybe it's oh. gotten better but he, i guarantee he sat there and really ruminated between prosthetics makeup like tangible like uh textual makeup or cg makeup and he made the decision for old age the actual makeup effects were the best choice. Yeah, and I would say those are probably the best old person makeup I've seen in a movie. Like, honestly, I didn't realize because that was... Uh... Multiple characters have differing variations on it throughout this movie, and they none of... It's never it's never off-putting. Mm-hmm. It always makes sense. So yeah. Kate Blanchett is playing the role of Daisy. Her daughter, Caroline, is played by Julia Ormond. Um, but 
so we meet them and then with the of course with that southern draw we realize benjamin button not played by martin short not played by tom cruise not played by john travolta but in his adult form adult i'm using mm. air quotes there because his life is a little different yeah, uh little is, played, is played by brad pitt now i'm just gonna go ahead i'm gonna make a bold i think this is brad pitt's best performance wow period and maybe i might agree with you there it's a tough um it's like I, yeah it's a great performance i definitely agree with you brad pitt made there was an adjustment made around 2007 uh, actually earlier pardon me i guess i think his performance in Babel. Is kind of the starting point to a calmer Brad Pitt, a subdued Pitt. Uh, Fight Club. I think Troy kind of was the end game. I think in his mind of him being kind of like the matinee idol, and he went into kind of a you know 2006 was when Babel came out. Kind of a middle aged man, a calmer middle aged man face in his acting and i think Babel and the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford kind of get this get the ball rolling here of course he still has wild cards in him where he goes a burn after reading and inglorious bastards around this time but i think like the like you think about this you think about um tree of life which i think is one of his great performances as well mm. a calmer more subdued he's not as like we've covered him in seven we've covered him in um Thelma and louise we covered him in fight club and yeah. he's a younger kind of wire like live wire actor in those movies and this like you almost go to that part like where he comes back from war in this and queenie's like oh you've seen some things and you feel that with brad pitt too by this point in his career He's, yeah. he's 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 seen some things in his life. He's not some young punk kid actor anymore. He, he doesn't he's... feel the need to prove himself. No. And this continues. Like, think about him in Moneyball. Think about oh, him yeah. in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's got like he 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 realizes he has personal gravity that he doesn't need to prove by doing like acting gymnastics or anything like that. Yeah, he doesn't have to go full 12 monkeys. He doesn't have to have quirks and or be like or be like the ultimate hunk. Yeah, he he has nothing to prove. And thus he like like Benjamin kind of lives there. He's he observes, he notices, like he's doing subtler moves in this movie and I think it's just I think what he does is haunting. And I think about how because so one of the great effects that they do in this movie is that Brad Pitt is not the only person who plays Benjamin Button. Mm-hmm. There are actually let me get to this here. Oh. Six other Benjamin Buttons. And outside wow. of the truly the the end of the movie, the child versions, which are clearly played by different actors, the the Robert Towers, Peter Donald Baldamente II, and Tom Everett also play Benjamin Button, but they played Benjamin Button with a blue sock over their head. And their bodies are Benjamin Button. But they used a CG technique where Brad Pitt did every line from the first hour of this movie. And they put his face onto these guys and then aged the face with CG. So 
Brad Pitt is still playing Benjamin Button the entire way through this movie, pretty much. The extraordinary thing I found in this screening is when he's playing him as the old man at the beginning, he's mentally a child. And so Brad, the way he plays it, he plays him as a kid in this body. So what he does, how he smiles at things, like when he discovers things, that's a child discovering things. And Brad understands each stage of life. Despite the fact his body is different. Isn't that I, amazing? It does. Like, well, and I agree with you, like the the sequence, for example, where um he's putting the ear horn to the fork. Mm-hmm. That is such a like child fussing the world for the first time figuring out basic things I see, like i see it at home with my daughter wow. every day and the fact that pitt and fincher are thinking about that with every single scene and you don't half-ass it they're thinking okay brett benjamin button is five years old here but he's in the body of like an 80 year old but He's five. He's it's like when he go when they go to that revival and he's like seven, but I look a lot older. <laughs> he's a kid. He's telling a joke yeah. like a kid, and it's it's just I, again like we what why do we start watching movies? It's like movie magic, and that disappears much like aging, like the magic of life. Yeah. But when I, every single time I watch this movie, I feel like a kid in that, like, I can't believe this. I can't, like, it's just. And, and I feel like that's, like, one of the goals of me. Like, you're supposed to, like, I don't know. And not always, but I do think to some degree, like, one of the great things about cinema is you're supposed, it allows you to see things you've never seen before. Like, Yeah, yeah. That's, like, worlds. And this and this world is so fussed upon by Fincher and his team that you are transported. Like it might not be a real New Orleans, it might not be a real Russia, it might not be a real France, but you certainly like. It's their version. It's like it's all the same. It's their world. Yeah. The only place that feels connected to us at all is the modern day hospital. Yeah, I lo- see. That's like one thing I truly love about this movie is. And what I think probably separates it from a Gump, because I don't think, like I said, I haven't seen Gump, but yeah. I have a feeling there isn't this factor. To, <laughs> there isn't some old lady dying being like, let me tell you the story of Forrest Gump. Uh, <laughs> but uh, like, I love that like you'll have these like really whimsical, um, you know, Brad Pitt interludes uh, of the early years of his uh, backwards life or whatever. And then it's juxtaposed with the banal. Mm-hmm. Like that yeah. is such an interesting, uh, that juxtaposition is so fascinating and watching the, the uh, fabulistic world slowly catch up to banality. And it's so, what is so interesting about this movie is the fact, the only extraordinary thing about Benjamin Button is mm-hmm. how he's born. Yeah. There's nothing else. Like he is a like regular guy. He's, does some stuff, has some relationships, isn't a failure, but isn't really like, you know, like, what what is a success? Who knows? Mm. But he's not like the American Hollywood standard of success yeah. by any means. But 
you know, and I think that that's so interesting because he's not like, you know, because Forrest Gump is kind of like, he weirdly is a success. <laughs> like he kind of falls back asswards into success, but he is a success. Like Benjamin Button maintains a fairly normal existence outside of the fact that he's outside of existence and he's an observer because of his it, ailment, curse, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So we meet him. He's born to Button Magnet. <laughs> Thomas Button, played by Jason Fleming, who I love many people Fleming know from um, like the Guy Ritchie movies and that kind yeah. of thing. But in this, he's great. Everyone, everyone, am I kidding? Everyone's great in this movie. But um, he, as immediate, his wife dies in childbirth. Benjamin's mother and they think he's a monster Benjamin so he runs through New Orleans in this like classic Fincher like how, how did you do it yeah. kind of sequence like oh my I gotta, god I gotta, I gotta find a way to get rid of this dang yeah. baby and it's like this like yeah it's like this chase sequence and it's all <laughs> these shadows it's like very noirish almost <laughs> and he ends up at this elderly like would you call it an elderly boarding house? I don't like. I guess it's old, like, like kind whatever, of an, like whatever a nineteen eighteen old folks home is. Yeah, like a proto retirement home. I yeah, don't know. and he drops the baby off with like fifteen bucks and Rude. runs away. The baby is discovered by Queenie, who is the caretaker of the house, played by Taraji P Henson. Mm -hmm. And her um, cool dude lover, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> cool uh, dude. He's just a cool guy. Yeah. Cool dude lover. Tizzy Weathers played it. First time I ever saw him, Mahershal Ali. This was Ooh. the first, my introduction to him as an actor. I don't know if he was if this was yours. But, uh, uh, mine would be uh, a little show on the USA Network called The 4400. Ah, I've never seen that show. But yes, uh, this was the first time I saw him. <laughs> and... They, they discover him. We discover that Queenie, who is like, you watch it and you're like, this is like very, very like archetypical mother mm -hmm. character. Like she, all she, she's a caretaker. That's like, like in every sense yeah. of the word. She's like, very like, a, it's almost like Jimmy Stewart-esque, like just a good person. Yeah. Yeah. She's like a saint. All things, you know. For mm -hmm. like, <laughs> yeah. This is part of like, like she tells her daughter, you know, shit about shit or something like that, which is really funny. Like, <laughs> but um, and yeah, and you need a very charismatic big actress. Charlie P. Hansen fits that bill completely. Yeah, they have the baby examined, and they're like, the doctor's like, this, this is showing all the signs that this is an old man about to die. And I don't get this at all. But she's like, but we discover she cannot have, at least at this point, she's been unable mm -hmm. to have children. and She desperately wants a child of her own. Mm -hmm. So she takes in Benjamin as her son. And that's, this is really where the story takes off. Oh, yeah. And he lives in an old folks home where people are dying every day. And he's getting younger. As they are all <laughs> getting older and dying. 
Yeah, and but he's this, like, but it's all he knows too. It's it's interesting, like when he they, this 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 uh, section of the film is very fascinating to me because he he loves it. Like he talks about like I had a great life in this and old person's home. Truly, like magical moments, like, and it captures these moments of life that like. Ever since I've seen this movie, I've noticed, like, I was this past summer we went to Las Vegas. And I don't know if you've ever been to the New York, New York casino. It's no. the recreation of it's weird. It's like a recreation of New York. And there's like this like city area with the food court is where it's like all these like city blocks and stuff like that. I happen to be there at like three thirty in the morning and all the restaurants are shut down. And it's like nobody's like the casino's quieted down. And I was kind of wandering through this like fake city. Mm-hmm. And it's like totally quiet. And I was like Oh, this is like a Benjamin Button moment. It's like I'm I bu- really thought I'm about it like, right now. But I was like, yeah, it's like, oh, this is so like magical and weird and beautiful. And like, how well, odd you, is this? Well, you know what's fucking beautiful about Benjamin Button is that like he is a normal guy, but one thing that separates him from every other person besides his button disorder is he never takes life for granted. No. Dude never. is always fucking. Ha- it's really. Yeah, it is kind of beautiful. He, That's how like that movie is like a because he's a witness. He is a witness to yeah. life. He's both a participant and a witness because he can't fully just like be someone cruising through life because he sees every moment of life. He has to see it because he sees it differently. Because yeah. he lives differently than ever mm. anyone else in the entire universe. He's always <laughs> lives aware. Differently. He, he, yeah, he can he can never like because he's always like aware of himself uh, juxtaposed to everyone else. He weirdly can't take life for granted. He's both a participant. He's, he's the ultimate observer too in life, and so he sees everyone. He sees all of these people, and Fincher willfully puts these magical elements in. So. In this group of old people, there's this guy who has been struck by lightning seven times. And he talks about it, and they get these wonderful, like, old-timey black-and-white footage of him being struck by lightning. Somehow he never dies. He's always there. It doesn't matter to us, like, that it's not particularly logical that this old man is there for the first, like, 30 years of Benjamin's life without changing. And everyone else there dies. The other thing, the woman whose name he can't remember brings a dog. And that dog is there, agelessly, the entire time after that dog arrives. Isn't that interesting? Like another, like, I love that. And it's not, it's not an accident at all that the dog is like an observer there too. And maybe the dog is aging in the same way for all we know. (laughs) They never, well, and I love that, like, you never, um, you know, he Fincher gives you all these things, but he doesn't like spell it out. He never like tells you this means that or. And it's what's also so interesting. So this brings us to uh, one of the most memorable sequences in the movie that apparently the studio fought tooth and nail to cut. They didn't think was necessary, which is the entire Little Man OT sequence. Which. Oh, wow. Mr. Weathers has a friend show up who is um Nagunda Oti mm-hmm. who um has lived a unique life yeah. in their own right and even tells tales of being put in a zoo 
with which is terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, no, not great. Yeah, that, this is good. Everything from his arrival to his takes this movie to me to the next level. And I and Fincher really argued about how important he felt to see. He's like, it doesn't seem like it on the surface, but Benjamin is meeting another outsider, mm-hmm. and knowing that you can live and have adventures as an outsider basically is what he's being taught like well, that's, yeah, they will never get... be a part they will never be a part but they can still live yeah it's kind of this this idea and they have this like a magical journey into new orleans you know <laughs> well and it's like you know it parallels like every kid's like first you know we're gonna like you know go out and drink for the first time or cool, we're gonna go like out, a cool yeah. adult like a cool adult friend Who's like yeah. a little like I mean I remember yeah like I had this guy who lived up the street who was like five years older than me who listened to Metallica and had a mullet when I was like nine and he yeah. was like fifteen and I was like this is the coolest guy I've ever met yeah, this, <laughs> this is yeah this is Benjamin Button's Metallica mullet man yeah and um but yeah I guess it was and I want to also note so this the music cue that introduces Little Man OT is like this playful jaunty kind of cue and the score to this movie is done by alexandra desplot who is probably most well known for doing wes anderson scores and i think and he's done um guillermo del toro scores and that kind of thing too yeah fantastical sound like um much more like not the harder edge that the dust brothers or trent reznor and atticus ross bring or even Howard Shore's kind of like looming ominous scores. Um, this one is more again to go with the theme, and I think it's a, a again with Fincher just choosing the best things to tell a story. I don't think he would work. I don't think Alexander Desplat normally in any of the other Fincher movies. You know, maybe Mank, but um, it wouldn't work. As a composer, yeah. his style I mean, doesn't match up. Yeah, because he, he's peak whimsy. That's like but, the yeah. But here, it's like this is one of my favorite scores of all time. I'll just put it mm-hmm. that way. I listen. I've listened to this score hundreds of times on its own. Oh wow! When I'm writing or kind of just yeah, I think it's I think it's because again, it takes you away, it takes you away to the exact feeling of this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think um, yeah, it's whimsical, but it's also melancholic and eerie yeah. too and it's like it's haunting it's, te- it's textured it's like yeah because yeah, like, whimsy i feel like there's an implication you know whimsy rims with flimsy like it's yeah. very like uh, a, a good way yeah, to it put be, it yeah it can be a little it can be a little but there's so much more depth to what Displot brings because this is a movie of depth this is like yeah. a movie that is like i hate uh banting terms like but this is like a it's like a fable for adults yeah, it is. Yeah. It, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's a fairy tale for adults. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so we get through this sequence and then so that one. And then I just love like him wandering around the nursing home at night when everyone's asleep. This movie has a really like interesting relationship with night and sleeping. Mm-hmm. Too. Like it's just like it feels like because it feels like a dream. It feels like something you would think about in the middle of the night. This movie. Yeah. And and Fincher is of course a night filmmaker, regardless of his theme. Like his movies feel like they all take place at night. 
Well, and it's like when the way he films night in this movie, though, it always feels like um, like you're a kid on Christmas Eve like that. It's like that kind of night, like that level of like there's always like this weird, like, yeah, current yeah. of like wonder in the air uh, a little I bit was, early. And I was thinking about that because I watched this on December. We're watching this in December. This movie yeah. came out on Christmas Day and there's no Christmas in this movie, but this movie it's a feels like sad Christmas, does it not? Yeah, it's like, Christmassy. It's sad is... New Year, like it feels like an end of the year winter kind of alone. Being a, like, I watched it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, and I even told Jen afterwards. I'm like, I don't know if you were ready. Like this movie. The other thing I noticed too, it's like it has a big difference when I watched this in 2008 when I was I mean, 26, 27 years old, mm-hmm. and being, you know, 40 married with a child. Yeah, yeah, it probably has a different weight. I would imagine. It really does. Yeah. It, it's like it's it's really something and I like I can't wait to see this movie. You know, hopefully hopefully I'm around. But um but I'm sixty. I can't wait. Oh yeah. Like it'll be like such ill. Oh my god. Like it's just even imagining it feels haunting. Because this movie because another part of this early portion of this movie is he meets this woman who he does, he's like he does that great thing some of the most important people in your life you might even not remember and he doesn't remember her name and when she dies the first time I've ever noticed her tombstone's blank it's like a quick because they, they show it from a wide angle they don't do a close up of it there's no name on the tombstone Wow. yeah because he can't remember that's his yeah. he's telling the story but she says that line, we're supposed to lose the people we love. How else will we know how important they are to us? And brutally sad. Yeah. But true. Like, oh, completely man. and utterly true. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Like, I mean, this and, whole movie she, is melancholy. She's dead the next scene. Yeah. <laughs> well, this whole movie is melancholy. Like, like um, we'll get to it, but like the last like frame of this movie like that final it's like one of the saddest things and i say that Mm. as a compliment like yeah it's but this is a 150 million dollar movie about accepting death that fucking rules (laughs) yeah it does does. he got away with it yeah got away with it and they hoodwinked you into thinking it's gonna be like fucking out of africa or like some like academy thing yeah it's the strangest saddest gigantic movie I can think of like it's amazing mm-hmm. and all of it's based on oh we got Brad Pitt aging backwards we'll give him whatever money we want <laughs> like you know <laughs> and, and, and it's like oh it's a love it's like a this epic love story it is kind of because yeah. of course the big moment is Thanksgiving 1930 Benjamin meets seven year old Daisy in his mm-hmm. front yard. Now, Daisy is interestingly enough, of course, as an adult, played by Kate Blanchett, but at age at age seven, played by Elle Fanning, and age ten, played by Madison Beattie. And oh. you got to hand it to Madison Beattie; she is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Master, and The Curious Case of ben- Benjamin Button. I would retire at twenty-five if I were. Yeah. <laughs> so three for three. Yeah, three for three. That's enough. She's in other things, but it's like. Whoa, you're in like three of the greatest movies in the last 20 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, slam dunk. But the fascinating and a truly Fincherian thing here, Kate Blanchett voices her the entire movie. 
Oh, Both those young actresses are dubbed, and Kate Blanchett's voice is decreased to sound more youthful. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, so they don't de because basically what he reveals in the commentary track, it's a hell of a lot easier to age somebody than it is to de age somebody, which shouldn't come as a surprise considering how much de aging we've seen in movies recently in house. It still isn't quite there. Yeah, as a form, like it's getting closer. Yeah, but it's really? not. We're ten years out. I feel like. Yeah, but it's not all the way there. And yeah. so Fincher says in the commentary, like we're kind of gonna like try and hide things, try and work around that. The biggest de aging sequence is, of course, the Benjamin when Benjamin arrives as a teenager toward the end of the movie. And he said that there's a shot where Benjamin turns his head kind of and the camera kind of turns with him. Mm-hmm. He said that shot was like the most expensive shot in the entire movie and took months to get down. Like, oh, God. Yeah. And and but they do some really, really like great de-aging on Kate Blanchett when she plays a teenager and a young woman mm-hmm. early because it's her body and she's playing it. But she. And again, to her credit, oh my God, I was thinking about that scene where they meet when she's like 25 and she's just started dancing and she goes out to dinner with him. She's behaving like a 25 year old. It's amazing. Yeah, like it's... they understand the stages of life and how people behave in those stages of life. She, she I gotta say, Kate Blanchett, uh, it might be tied with like best performance with like uh with brad she is incredible you have to have like you have to have like the biggest and best stars to play these two roles like you have to she she, i might she might be the best living actress i'm gonna say it right now i think she's better than streep i think like yeah tar has it (laughs) like she's she can play like boy tar fucking good in tar yeah well you can see like the bits of tar in her well and i think she's such a like um well i think what i what you know and this is no this is no criticism to meryl streep i think she's more adventurous than meryl streep yes i think she's willing to dabble on the dark side a little bit more and that might just be our taste that we kind of like that but you know she She's a tra- She goes to the auteur filmmakers. She's willing to play a character like Tar, who's like difficult. At the very least, that's a one Messy. way. To, one way to sit, describe her is difficult. Another mm-hmm. way is like tyrannical. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, but it's like I think it's like wow. Like they wrote a part, a female part. Hopefully, we get many, many more of these. That's at the same level as Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood. You know, yeah. it's like actors and actresses should get those opportunities to play part, like characters and parts that big and that difficult and that crazy. And she just hits a home run every time she gets the chance to do so. So Benjamin meets Daisy and despite their looks, they're actually pretty much pretty close to the damn same age. So, of course, they start a youthful flirtation. Benjamin gets in trouble because he's un- misunderstood and it hurts his feelings so much. That seemed heartbreaking to me where they're kind of under the table, yeah. like as kids would do, but because no one thinks he's a kid, you know, it's just like, you're, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. It is like really grim. That is like, yeah, 
And we should note the scene where he learns to walk. I, it's a little bit before this, where he goes to the revival tent is another favorite scene in the movie for me. Like where the preacher's screaming at him to rise and rise. <laughs> and they do, oh God, I remember from the trailer because in the trailer you're like, oh, what is this movie? Because they show him kind of like, shuffling on the stage and he's clearly brad pitt but he's in this weird body yeah, <laughs> you know? he's making this like weird grimace too yeah and he's like, yeah. He, like smiling but it's hard yeah and it's, it's like, yeah it's very oh yeah odd. and it's so necessary to have like a revival christian revival tensing <laughs> even though it's weird because i was thinking about where christianity falls in on this movie mm. like the idea of heaven the idea of the afterlife is how like it's interesting too because Benjamin seems to be more discuss like heaven and God earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. It kind of disappears for him as yeah. the movie progresses, which is kind of interesting. I think he loses it on his uh, on one of his escapades in uh, Central Asia. Uh, Certainly, like... yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know, but um, it's another wonderful, like just like all the up kind of episodic scenes and. It's weird because it's such an extraordinary thing, but I, I connect with this movie. I think I've made that pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel I am him. I don't understand people who say I am, you know, fucking a Sex in the City character or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that but I think you connect with certain behaviors. You connect with certain feelings. And that's what connects you with movies and makes them so profound. And I certainly understand, you know, I think the loneliness, I think the um, yeah. melancholy thinking about the way life moves it's hard not to yeah with that. well well like the yeah the wasted opportunities and then the the hope like i think like yeah i think there's something there <laughs> is like a straight strain of hope in this movie yeah but i mean you're thinking you're talking about like feeling that in like a empty hotel or kind of like Ooh. a night when a night is ended or something like yeah. that you're like you know even like we're talking about movie night like when everyone leaves there is like a brief I do feel brief tinge of melancholy. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, it's over. And I I hope that happens again. <laughs> it's kind of the feeling, you know what I mean? For sure. It's like, yeah, no, I feel it. It's like driving it's like driving by yourself on the freeway at like two in the morning. And you're yeah. like, okay, I hope, yeah, I hope I get home and everything's fine and I can start this again the next day. Or yeah, you have like you've had like a great, amazing night. And then you're like, well, it did end. Oh, the party. Yeah, when the party is over. Yeah. yeah things, and... things come to an end. That is yeah, more like. And <clears throat> yeah, I think I... it's hard. People don't want to, especially in like where we live in Los Angeles, the ageless war- capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to admit that. Oh, well, it's even like I went to my uh, 10 year college graduation reunion. And it was like this really awesome experience reconnected with a bunch of people I hadn't talked to in a decade. But there was like this tinge of melancholy, and it yeah. reminded me of the scene where Button goes back to his, um, you know, the old folks' home, but he's much younger, and yeah. it's like things can never be the same. It's that feeling of like you go to a place and, and you're like, like I and had he's these... like what he says. He's like, what you realize has changed is you. Yeah, yeah. That feeling and is so. It's it's, it's like beautiful it's and it's sad obvious, and but it isn't said a lot in like popular culture. Like, it's obvious, and that's what makes this movie kind of special to me, is like, yes, you're kind of saying it out loud, but it's like, not many other things bring about that feeling. Because most things are trying to kind of avoid that. Most things are yeah. trying to escape from that feeling. 
we're, yeah, we're trying to forget how um we're trying to forget the passage of time. No, I mean even like when the movie ended the other night, I was like, when is the next time I watch this movie? I don't know. I hope soon. Hope someday. Yeah. You know, it's like that's how and then you like, cry when you think that even if it's about a movie, but it's like my goodness, like when was the last time I watched it like two or three years ago and you know, it's a long movie and it's an emotionally draining movie. Yeah. But it's it's such an odd thing. You know, like you know, I think about that all the time. Do you watch new movies that you haven't seen before? Or do you go back to the ones you love the most mm. because of the way they make you feel? I know that's a minor minor thing, you know, but it's like It's a tough one though. Yeah, but when it's like yeah, well and it goes back to like the we only have so much time on Earth. It's like that like like that that line from Rumblefish where Tom Waits is talking about how many summers he has left. Oh, God. Like, like ever, <laughs> anyone who's seen Rumblefish, you're never going to forget that scene. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, that's true. You know, I've had 40 summers personally. 41. How many more do I get? And that's what this movie makes you think about for three fucking hours. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> nonstop. It's, it's extraordinary. Oh, sure. And if you're up for it, it's like, wow, what an extraordinary feeling. So. Benjamin's next stage in life, he goes down to the docks. He's growing. He's still an old man. And he meets a, another one of the more memorable characters of his life, Captain Mike Clark, played by Jared Harris, Ooh. who is um, a captain of a tugboat, but in his heart of hearts, he is an artist. And yeah, I mean, like a lot of these characters are kind of playing like big archetype kind of characters, mm. but I love them all the same. <laughs> like, well, all and, the like, and who and who hasn't met someone in? I mean, we're all kind of, especially like in L.A. Like, like this that's guy, like even one... more than Little Man Ot. This is your mulleted Metallica fan that you're yes. meeting. Oh, it's the mulleted Metallica fan, but then it's also like we're all like. um People, uh, so many people are people working day jobs. Who that, dream. yeah, yeah, who dream, and and sometimes you don't get that opportunity, and then you make the most of what you have. Exactly, man. And, he, and this is a man who lives, despite yes. the fact that you know, like every character in this movie, they die. Mm-hmm. His death is actually feels far more tragic than oh, yeah. some of the others, but everyone in this movie dies that's the entire point of the movie, like, you know, and this leads Benjamin to his like, you know, he's 19. He's leaving the house. He's like going to college, except he's an old man still. And instead he's going to go travel the world on this tugboat with captain Mike. And he says, goodbye to Daisy. And he says, he's going to write her from everywhere he goes. And it's this magical life transition. And he's on the, this tugboat with captain mike and he describes the guys every one of the guys on the boat barely gets a line and you like know exactly what their deal is completely the two brothers who like twin brothers who love each other on the boat but hate each other on land like the the guy um grim yeah who certainly fit his name yes (laughs) (laughs) there's a pleasant curtis who doesn't say a word but he's pleasant you know it's like the cook you know it's like you meet all these guys and he goes on this globe trying thing. So one of the most amazing things, they never shot on water for any of this. It was all in studio. Mm-hmm. And the water's all CG. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. 
<laughs> you know, it's incredible. And Fitcher talks about that. He's like, if there's anything as hard as de-aging, it's fucking realistic water. <laughs> and, you know, because it's like, <laughs> you know, water, it's like, how do you emulate water? Water's going to, in the ocean, it's doing what it does. Like, you can't, <laughs> but it looks beautiful. And we get our first in this sequence. He starts off on this real high angle and kind of comes in and Benjamin has his back to the camera. And mm-hmm. Captain Mike's like, uh, you know, I'm drunk all the time, but it appears you have sprouted. It's like, because he's, because he's like, he, that's a good way around the fact that Captain Mike is like, I'm hanging out with this guy who is like, something strange is happening to his body. <laughs> like, yeah, he's definitely like. <laughs> and this is the first shot because he turns around and it's the first time it's Brad Pitt in the mm-hmm. movie. And it's Brad Pitt under now. They've transitioned to Brad Pitt wearing makeup rather yep. than CG uh, Brad Pitt face on a different person's body. And you're like, oh, that's why it's strange because he's, he's Brad Pitt now. <laughs> yeah, he's just a guy now. <laughs> yeah, he's just a guy now. And they end up in Russia. And what we get is, oh, my God. I mean, I have many favorite sequences in this movie, but this Russian sequence Ooh. is near the top. I don't know about you. Well, and, well and it helps because there's a certain... Yes, there's a certain actress that you got, a, you know, you got a wild card of an actress. Another of I mean, shit. We just sang the praises of Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep. Yeah. Let's go. This one, Tilda Swinton has arrived oh, in the, the movie playing the Swinton role of Elizabeth Abbott, who is married to a British spy. Yeah, and we get Benjamin Button can't sleep, she can't sleep, and they meet in this ho- this decrepit hotel lobby each night for tea. And again, it's like this whole, like, they go through, they show everyone sleeping at home. It's, it's like, again, these thoughts that you have, these middle of the night thoughts. It's kind of. it's 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 dreamy. It's ethereal. Yeah. It's very like, yeah, by the. And yeah, Christmas also, Eve. It's very just Christmas Eve fireplace. I don't also know. Also can't help but be reminded of Fincher's latest film, The Killer, in which the killer goes to visit her at that restaurant. It's not hugely different. Which is like kind of intriguing, and we'll get into that a little bit more when we cover the killer. But mm-hmm. it's it is interesting that he uses he uses Tilda Swinton for this kind of hey, I could show you a ticket to a different life kind mm-hmm. of character. And it's and despite the fact he had a crush on Daisy Elizabeth, is kind of his first romance mm-hmm. of his life fully adult sexual romance yeah because they began an affair she teaches him how to eat caviar and i just i can't, I can't believe i never this before when he takes daisy out to dinner later on he's doing the vodka caviar thing that he got taught by tilda swinton oh wow her. that's his like move now like to Classic, be yeah, like, impressive which is like a classic her, 20s thing yeah you would absolutely do you 100 yes. percent do on a date if some yeah. older lady told you that and told you it was classy yeah, you want to show people that hey, I know things. Don't worry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and she and because Daisy's talking nonstop about how worldly she is in that scene, he has to like try and meet her. It's great. <laughs> it's like all of these little things add up to this extraordinary experience that all seems so authentic and truthful. So they have a love affair. Meanwhile, Daisy is uh, making her way in ballet school and. Another 
big Fincher thing, Kate Blanchett's face is placed on the body of real ballerinas. Oh, interesting. It's how they did those. Mm -hmm. Again. Yeah. I was like, Kate Blanchett, like that. Yeah, she's dancing very well. But yeah, I was she's surprised. Not. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, wait, love her pay grade. Yeah. She's dancing like a, yeah, somehow like a 19 year old prima ballerina. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Like, a, yeah, like a me an member of the Bolshoi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, because it's not. <laughs> because David Fincher utilizes everything in his arsenal mm -hmm. to make that happen. Benjamin tells her he's fallen in love and it breaks her heart. Classic, though, it's like being 19. You know, I mean, yeah, like, it happens. It's, it, it, these things happen. You're impetuous. You're a kid. Yep. So, the love affair, though, with Tilda Swinton ends, she disappears, but not before she shares an amazing story about how she tried to be the first woman to swim the English Channel, which is another weird kind of like, tr like, an artist or how everyone has an inner life in this movie. They they're who they present and who they are, what's in their mm -hmm. heart. And that gets to the end of the movie, the real like gorgeous postscript of them that concludes the movie. But like how Mahershala's character Tizzy can do Shakespeare, you know, yeah. and how Captain Mike is a tattoo artist who happens to drive a tugboat. And how um, Tilda Swinton is this bored wife of a spy in Russia who tried once in her life to achieve the extraordinary by by doing this swim. And she fails. For now, she fails. Mm. Because we'll cut to the – later on, Benjamin happens to be in New Orleans watching TV, and he sees like an older version of Tilda having succeeded at it and this is one of another one of my favorite moments brad does in the yeah. movie brad doesn't have a line he doesn't tell kate blanchett that he knows this woman but he just smiles in recognition like wow that's great like yeah that rules and it feels like so like that's life like yeah. wow i would feel so good it's her again and she did it like she she achieved her dream yeah and i'm never gonna see her again but I'm happy for her. Like, how beautiful, right? Yeah. Well, and his character never has, like, even when he's disappointed in the choices he has to make, uh, make, you know, okay, you know, because he makes a couple choices down the line of that are uh, sad. Dif yeah. Difficult, difficult. But uh, you never get a sense that, like, he regrets anything. Yeah. And he, he accepts. Yeah. You know, and he accepts like the good with the bad, because mm -hmm. you know I think, in addition to kind of our culture where no one wants to age, I think there's also kind of a feeling no one wants to accept that bad things are part of life. Yeah, pain, pain happens, no matter what. You can't avoid it. No one has mm -hmm. had a pain-free life. It's just, and then you die. Regardless, yeah. <laughs> like, like uh, you, you go through some pain and then you die. <laughs> yeah, but you also go through some beautiful things, and you have to, like Benjamin does, recognize the beautiful things. Hey, uh, to quote, uh, to quote Pinhead, there's a thin line between pleasure and pain. Yeah, know. yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's two of the more profound movies about life and death: The Curious Case of ben Benjamin Button and the original Hellraiser. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, the one-two punch. Yeah. I call it. Yeah. 
two great films, two classics, <laughs> two fucking classics, you know, <laughs> like, clearly. And I'm not, that's not a joke. I, being fully truthful, they are both classics. <laughs> like, I would love, please read this diary. And it's like the Necronomicon. Yeah. Oh, geez. That would have been funny. Yeah. It's like Evil Dead. It turns into a fucking Evil Dead movie. But so, um, He's left by Tilda Swinton, and he just World War II has started, and Captain Mike's boat has been basically taken over by the U.S. Navy mm-hmm. to kind of salvage downed um, like battleships and things of that nature. But it's outfitted with like a Gatling gun, like as a warship. It's coming oh, yeah. now, and they are given a um, like a soldier to, to be on the boat with them. He's <laughs> like a gunner who's really into America. And democracy. And we get to this amazing sequence in which they stumble on a German U-boat, basically, and end up in a battle sequence. And, well, and the boats crash into each other, huge explosion. And unfortunately, most of the crew on Benjamin's boat is killed, mm-hmm. including Captain Mike, who is shot and killed. And Benjamin's with him in his final moments. And I almost tear up thinking about it right now because it's so sad. <laughs> like it's 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 moving. And he ta- and he asked us to take Benjamin's hand and be with him in the last moment. And it's just so Yeah, it's just so fucking sad. <laughs> like it's just you know. it's, a br- it's brutal. It's like, well, and it um it's another one of the examples in this movie where a character is like, you know, confronted with death. Uh, pretty uh, immediately, like without any, like you know, hint of you know, you know, without any, yeah, like he, he just kind of comes towards them and they have to accept it immediately. They have that there's line, literally nothing else he can do. That line, you could be as mad as a mad dog at the way things went. You could rise up and curse the fates, but when it comes to the end, you have to let go. And boy, I mean, it's hard. No one can mm-hmm. do it, but you, you gotta. It's life. Yeah. And so he dies, and we get this this kind of another one of the motifs is this the hummingbird kind of being the symbol of um, transition from life to death, mm-hmm. which we see again at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so what I found so sad this time around is that they show the cut the the tugboat Chelsea has sunk. And it's slowly drifting underwater when Benjamin's looking out at it from the Navy ship. And you're like, oh, wow, that like stage of life. It's over. Mm-hmm. The entire yeah. thing. Done. Gone. Dis- disappeared. And, you know, you think about like, I don't know, like a crush I had on someone in middle school when I was in middle school with them. I have not seen them in 30 years. I'll probably never see them again. But it meant so fucking much <laughs> when I was in sixth, sixth and seventh grade, and I remember it like it was so your clearly. Life. Yeah, and it's like, oh my god, that's gone, never again. Yeah, and you can't go back to that. It's like, yeah, and you, you can't know. go back. Yeah, no, it's like it's like trying to like play with toys you played with as a ten year old, as an adult. You can't. Mm. There's literally no. There's just no way you just all you can do is just be like, I had a good time with this. Yeah, and it's a totem now rather than yeah. a um It's a symbol. Yeah, it's yeah. A... yeah, exactly. So uh Benjamin goes home 
and he discovers that while he was away, Mahershala Ali's character Tizzy has died in his sleep, Man. which is very yeah. sad. And it's like, and he's like, "Where's Tizzy? Oh, he died in his sleep." And the look on Benjamin's like, "Okay, more." Yeah, and, and <laughs> this that's sucks. What, this is when Queenie asks him. She's like, "She's like, oh, you saw some pain, didn't you?" And he's like, kind of nods his head like a kid, like, "Yeah, it, it doesn't feel good." But yeah. she's like, it's some joy too. And he's like, sure, sure. <laughs> like, but the the weight of life is already starting to, despite his weird state of how he's living his life, mm-hmm. the weight of life is all the same. Oh yeah. And these things begin to pile up. I mean, by this point in life, most people have at least lost a family member, mm-hmm. but you know, have lost a. I I had lost a close friend by the time I was twenty six. And it's, you know, that haunts you. That yeah. adds to the weight of life, you know. You've gone through some things by the time he gets home. So he's home, and this is when Daisy reemerges to visit from her, you know, meteoric rise ballet career. She is confident and flirtatious, and she kind of wants to sleep with him that night. Yep. And he's a little more reticent about it. And she kind of is like, okay, then hell with you. I'm out of here. But she's a kid. You can't yeah. like, you know, but get this sequence where she goes and does a dance in the middle of the night. It's like another showstopper, like visual sequence. And they put her, the costume designer puts her in this red dress that just like pops off the screen. And Fincher doesn't normally use that color either. Mm-hmm. And there are certain colors in this movie that Fincher doesn't normally use, but it's like very purposeful. One thing I noticed too is that in the sequence later on, and when she has her accident, she's wearing this canary yellow jacket mm-hmm. that really, really pops out. Later on, right before Benjamin leaves, he, when he's holding his daughter, she has a yellow, the same color yellow balloon, and she lets it go. So yellow yeah. seems to be a symbol of transition as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And little tricks like that just do that's so the, much that's the fincher touch it is it is so the next stage in benjamin's life is he's reintroduced to his father who mm-hmm. reveals who he is what his lineage is because up until this point he's just benjamin he doesn't yeah. even have a last name really mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. uh beautiful thing in a pre-internet time that you could just kind of get away with being like an off the grid human being. Yeah. Well, that's why this works is like, you know, that's why the beginning works so much as a fable. Cause it is like believable that you could have this weird man age backwards and sort of just like and drift, drift through society, drift through society without necessarily being noticed. particularly yeah, like, much. And the only reason he is ever noticed is when he becomes Brad Pitt and he's like gorgeous. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, because he's, he's in full hunk mode. Yeah, well, like, and it's like you you couldn't do a movie like this that was modern because even by like two thousand five, that dude's a news story and yeah, on nascent YouTube. And he, yeah, he's, he's got a reality show. Look at the guy who ages backwards. Yeah, that, that would suck sucks, so right? hard. We are Society is crass. We need to. Oh, it's so crass. You gotta, gotta, we gotta, like, you gotta think about things. Slow it down. Like, be, be Benjamin Button. Slow it yeah. down. 
Get off the like, dang TikTok, yeah. kids. Get off the TikTok and like watch a sunset. I don't know. Yeah, watch a sunset. <laughs> yeah. Watch a dang sunset. It's great. It's yeah. it, it lives up to the hype. Trust hey, me. <laughs> like, you, you know what's fleek? A sunset. Yeah. Freaking sunset, freaking ocean swim, you know? Yeah, you know what? You know what has the riz? <laughs> An ocean swim. Yeah. So he meets his and he discovers his lineage. He discovers that his father is a war profiteer. That's not good. It seems. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, the war was mighty. The war was mighty good. The, the button business. Uh, I love so that. He, yeah. So he's got like, he's going to give it all to him. So this is like mm-hmm. a convenient thing that Benjamin Button becomes a rich man. Yeah. Um. But oh well. His father is like rapidly like die like his legs falling. I mean, like, all sorts of stuff is happening. It doesn't matter though because. The sequence is gorgeous. He goes back. He's upset with his father, rightfully so, that he abandoned him. But he also recognizes he found a family. In particular, he found a mother. And it's not necessarily what you're born with. It's what you have. And he has a mother who loves him dearly. So he's willing to go back to this guy who abandoned him. And he takes him to this house on Lake Pontchartrain, and they watch a sunrise together. And his father, for all of his pain and regret, he lets go in that moment. And he exhales. I don't think he he doesn't necessarily die in that moment, but he the weight is lifted from his yeah. father, despite the fact Benjamin's never going to be ever like a full son to him he's never going to like give him that he lost that he lost that yeah it's gone mm-hmm. and then his father of course dies as well <laughs> and they bury him but now benjamin is a rich man so he's able to go visit daisy in new york who's gone like full bohemian um oh yeah artsy she's, you know 30 year old yeah you know she, she's full on like uh you know uh all that jazz uh what's that uh feud um Oh, the yeah, the Bob Fosse. Yeah, he's like a Bob Fosse character, you know, at this point, you know. Yeah. And she kind of um, Benjamin is becoming Brad Pitt, but he's not all the way. He's like a middle aged Brad Pitt at this point. But she kind of rejects him. He's a little stuffy. So he goes home and he's like, more things are changing for me. And. Mm We get this sequence, the music rises, motorcycle comes down the highway, and it's no longer old man. It is matinee idol Brad Pitt. We're in, in the hunk. We're in hunk territory. And the way they dress him in this movie, he looks so fucking cool. Like, far, <laughs> like he looks so I don't think anyone's worn khaki pants cooler. <laughs> it's like he's Bobby Deerfield all of a sudden. <laughs> you know? Bobby and, D. But you know, you know our guy yes, Bobby. Yes, I know what you're talking about. And Same. he's yeah. cool, and he's like sailing, and he's like meeting the ladies, and he's wearing cool hats and leather jackets and stuff like that. <laughs> and then and he's working around the house, and he's he's in the full spring of his youth, despite his youth not being his youth. Yeah, but he is now youthful. He gets a letter. Daisy is in Paris, and this this sequence here is like to me where Fincher really flexes his kind of like muscles as a director. He does this in a lot of movies. The, the 
the Mountain King regatta in Social Network strikes me as a very similar sequence in which he takes something that doesn't need to be a showstopper, flashy, stylized thing mm-hmm. and turns it into exactly that. So we get the tale of how Daisy had her accident. And he goes through all of these characters and all of like the the hands of fate, basically mm-hmm. setting up Daisy crossing the street and being hit by a taxi cab. Mm-hmm. She survives, but her leg is shattered and she will never dance ballet again. And it's an amazing piece of filmmaking, like in the center of this movie that he just decides, like, I'm going to do this like mini. Like, I'm going to show I'm going to show off a bit in my skill yeah. set it's like <laughs> like and well it's like this like robert Bellano level of like specificity and detail yeah. where it's like yeah had i not you know taken the coffee from that person and had, and I had, had the, this, and... this gal not broken up with her boyfriend the night before and had the taxi driver not stopped and like all these things oh, and daisy wouldn't have had her accident her life would not have been irrevocably changed he goes to visit her and there's an amazing sequence where he like leans into focus because she's a little drugged out and hazy. He leans into focus and the recognition on her face, oh my God, look at him. Look who he is now. Like I knew this guy is this weird old man. Yeah. And now he's and now he's Brad Pitt. <laughs> like, he was know? like my grandpa friend. Yeah, and now, now he's like the best looking man I've ever seen in my life. Hunk down population. She even says it, she goes, Oh my god, you're perfect. Uh, you know, I and mean, he is at that yeah. point. And it's remarkable. And she makes him leave. He goes back to New Orleans, but he reveals like, oh, I was monitoring you, making sure you were okay the entire time we weren't in contact. And he loves her so fucking much. Yeah. That's it. So it's like that's the thing. He just absolutely adores her. Mm-hmm. Despite he his recognition, like I am who I am, and this is this is finite. Yeah, well, and it's like it's true love, but it's done in like a way. It's almost like the anti Big Fish, where like he's not like Ewan McGregor being like, "I'm gonna just you know it's, give it's you a million sent- flowers." I don't yeah. think this movie's sentimental, and I know it no. was accused of it, but I don't think it is at all. No. Like, so she returns to New Orleans, and they finally make love. And become a couple like they and boy like he's like okay what are we gonna what are we gonna do with these two like gorgeous movie stars we're gonna put them on boats in like these great costumes mm-hmm. and like at the beach like making out and you're like oh you're just doing like this movie like full scale like like let's yeah. show these movie stars and they're like top form like basically peak, like bombastic hollywood bomb yeah it's it's gorgeous there's yeah. this part where they both come out of the water in close-ups, and they like look like it's like a perfume ad. <laughs> You're like, there are uh, there's straight up shoe, our sequences, know, yeah. Our shoe, our shoe salesman. So one thing I noticed too, on a technical side, that I I've been studying Fincher in preparation for this short film we're gonna do. In addition to our podcast, selfishly I've been studying him. Oh to, yeah, like figure out what he does. So. We all know he does the shots where the camera moves with the actor. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing a kind of example for Patrick right now. I'm holding the frame as I'm moving around. So it gives it this kind of like 
very smooth, very stable feel. Like anytime camera a character sits up, camera follows them directly. So their hairline or their um the the haircut basically between the top of the frame and their head never changes. Mm-hmm. They move precisely, which is beautiful. But thinking about his, him, his editing, and we got to give a big shout out to the editors, Kurt Baxter and Angus Wall. Ooh, Long two time. Kings. Two, two Kings. Why does his movies feel, why do their edits feel different? And it's because if he's not doing the camera moving with the character, if the character, then he'll cut between the character, like shifting an item over. There's always movement. Mm-hmm. And that's why it feels so like you're like like you're on a swim almost in the ocean. Yeah. But between shots, between scenes, like there's a seamlessness that is just no one else does it like this. Everyone is sloppy comparatively. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like it's, definitely it's, everyone it's, is sloppy comparatively. It's so rare when um editing is given um an aesthetic purpose. Yeah. Beyond just, you know, like we're shifting from one scene to the other. Like that's like, I think another Fincher difference. He he utilizes that tool to its fullest extent. Every scene fits together seamlessly. Like you couldn't imagine like removing or adding stuff even in in its own way. So it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. This sequence is like, you know, peak of all of that. Yeah. They come together. It, this is where the big epic romance really kind of takes shape within the movie. But then they finally come home from their sojourn and they walk in. They look great. They look like models. They walk into the house. <laughs> They're both wearing like these great, like little khaki clothes. Like they look just amaing. Yeah. Um, but they're like, they're looking around. The house seems oddly quiet. Mm-hmm. Oh, he just discovered his mother's dead. Queenie died. While he was away. So they go to Queenie's funeral, which is appropriately like tragic and sad. But it's not because she lived like a long, amazing life, too. Mm-hmm. She dies of like, she's old. Or she right. dies. It's not like Captain Mike or somebody like that. Yeah. So they decide to start over. So they start selling off his father's properties to get their own place, to make their own memories. And they get this amazing part where he's selling his father's home and his father showed him all the photos on the wall of his like mother, his real, his like birth mother and his like lineage basically. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, these are amazing family photos. There's quite a family history here. And he quickly goes, they come with the house. Like <laughs> forgives, accepts, but doesn't forget. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting, it, it makes him very human. Yeah, well, and it's, yeah, I mean, and the thing, too, is like he is, um, yeah, he is uh, <laughs> nice in character uh, and he's nice in the moment. But he uh, he never I mean, he even says it himself, like he says it to Queenie, like Queenie was his mom. It wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. the, 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 the your this, my uh, mother. Yeah. At, yeah. at his own father's funeral. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And so they move into we got ourselves a duplex. And they move into a duplex. And this is where they kind of have their kind of romantic comedy kind of like they play play around. They're like hitting each other with the paint rollers and stuff. Paint each other's butts, you know. 
doing that, you know, run, like trying to, oh my gosh, the move the refrigerator man's here. We're naked. <laughs> you know? That is it is so funny that there is just like this like three minute like romantic and it's comedy the, sequence. It's the one kind of Gumpian thing because it's set to the Beatles and they're watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So it's like, oh, here's our like 60s pop cultural moment, you know. Yeah, we're we're but, twisting. Yeah, they're twisting. You know how it is. I yeah. twist. You know, we, we all twist. We all twist. Uh, but then it's revealed that she is pregnant. And this is where <laughs> her daughter, yeah. real time, is like, wait a minute. <laughs> what did you meet, Dad? <laughs> I was like, oh, wait no. a minute. Well, and Benjamin is appropriately freaked out. He's yeah. happy, but he's freaked out. Well, because... and it's also like she just to, really quickly. She gets pregnant at like 43 or 41. Like, yeah, it's, it's she's very... older, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they. He's very nervous about having the child. This is also the sequence where he discovered Tilda Swinton made her swim, which <laughs> is cool. Very nervous about having the child, one, because he doesn't want Kate Blanchett to have to raise the both of them simultaneously when he becomes a child. And two, he doesn't want um, her, his daughter or child to have, let's just call it Benjamin Button disease. Yeah, that would <laughs> suck. Buttoning yeah. does not seem fun. Does not want to pass along what he feels is kind of a curse. Yeah. To another... But they go, you know, they continue forward, and she has the baby. We have this wonderful sequence, one of Brad's best performance moments in the movie, where he waits to see about the health of the child, and he's so genuinely scared. He doesn't overact it, though, but he's so scared. And then when he goes in to visit, he discovers that the child is, you know, regular baby, mm-hmm. you know, and but then kind of the melancholia sits in that he's at some point he's going to have to walk away. Yeah. And this is, it's odd because he himself is an abandoned child. He has to do the same thing his father did. And it's like, I think it's like him for the first time realizing too, that like, I mean, I guess he always, there's always been this like low level radiation of him acknowledging that he doesn't belong in this world. But this is truly, I think the moment in the movie where he realizes, oh, I am a fable. I am a weird anachronism. I am, an outside. I am on the outside, and I am forever on the outside. Yeah. Like, I was playing house, and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. But now, I'm truly back to reality of who I am and kind of my status as forever an outsider, an observer. Mm-hmm. And I also think, like, I think David Fincher feels himself as an outsider. I think... Like this genius on the outside who's never going to be fully understood, but he wants to be a part. Too. Yeah. Like I do think, I I mean I think he's Fincher's a lot closer character wise to um, Robert Gray Smith or Mark Zuckerberg than he is Benjamin Button. Mm-hmm. But I think his movies are forever about a person on the outside who's like looking for a way in who can't really get in. Yeah. Same way. Like... I think Scorsese's movies are like that too. Yeah. Well, and it's like with Fincher, it's like. Typically, like, someone who, like, aggressively beats to their own drum. Yeah, and who's extraordinary. Yeah. And it's, well, and that's interesting. And that's interesting, too, because, like, Benjamin Button, I feel like it's the one time where, like, that aggressive beating to their own drum is, like, passive. It's not like he's extraordinary um, because of his, you know, uh, affliction. Or his case, or whatever yeah. you want to call it. It's not like... Um... But he's not like a mastermind like Mark Zuckerberg or um, Amazing Amy in yeah. Gone Girl. 
And yeah. as a result, he's not someone who like looks down on everyone or like is like purposefully alienating himself. Yeah, I mean, we see a lot more of that in his other works. You know, mm-hmm. like the, whether it's yeah, Amazing Amy or The Killer or Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I think that that's closer to who he is a little bit more. There's a little more of like a nasty arrogance. Yeah. To to kind of his his smartest guy in the room persona. Yeah, but I think that. that. But I what I but I like about him is like there's that flip side with characters like Benjamin Button or Mank, even. Mm-hmm. You know? Because I think Mank fits the bill too. Oh, for sure. So he after her first birthday walks get sells a bunch of stuff to have enough money for his family, and he walks away. Or drives away on his cool motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, gotta go be cool now. Bye. And, uh, no, we go back to the present, and obviously his daughter Caroline Julia Mond is very um, upset mm-hmm. at all of this. She has discovered she has a different father, that she was abandoned by her father, and that her mother never told her any of this until her mother's on her deathbed. This is a lot to take in. Yeah, this is a the therapy that Caroline will be going through in the weeks and months and years to follow. <laughs> this this is going to be uh, extensive. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's like, yeah, my dad is a Benjamin Button. This is a lot to take in. And I never, I only maybe briefly met him ever because, mm-hmm. you know, we find out he's gone by the point that she's even reading this story. Mm-hmm. But we get this, the, this, I call this, the, I think this is best referred to as the postcard sequence of the mm-hmm. movie in which she discovers he wrote her postcards from all over the world, giving her like fatherly advice and kind of his yearning to say, I wish I could be there. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> it's like brings tears to your eyes thinking about that. Um, and we get this amazing sequence where we go to like a different format. I think it's like a 16 millimeter film style format. Uh, of him traveling through India. Yeah. And, oh, and man. His, like, life. And he does this monologue over it about, like, the opportunities and possibilities of life. And, like, he says this, like, one eye. There are no rules to this thing. You do whatever you want. You know, and it's so beautiful. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if his daughter did that. Like, that's the thing that haunts me about this entire... I don't think she did. Yeah, you get yeah, you get the sense that like her the daughter's life and it's alluded to throughout the movie, it never turned out the way it was supposed to. And and she hasn't done a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah, and it's like has she you know, and that's the other thing, maybe maybe she takes off after this. Maybe she does something different. If she I don't gets know. the if she gets the chance. But then again, she's in the middle of Hurricane Katrina, and that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> God only knows. Like, it's knows. so melancholy. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Because th- her entire world is literally, literally and figuratively flooding mm-hmm. as this is happening. So, <sighs> interesting thing about the India sequence is that the it was actually directed by Tarsim Singh. Whoa, um, really? Mr. Yeah, uh, Cell. Cell, L- losing my religion. The REM music video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the fall. But the fall. Yeah. And um, obviously another like propaganda music video filmmaker who happened to be in India 
simultaneous to when Brad Pitt was there and they just threw it together, basically. Wow. And Fincher was not there present for it, but he trusted his colleague to take care of business to get He's the sequence goods. down. Yeah, he does. So then we get to cut to many years later. I think it's the early 80s by this point. Mm-hmm. And Daisy has a dance studio. She's middle-aged the to middle-aged woman at this point. Yeah. Her daughter's a teenager. She's remarried to you appropriately said a flaps like figure, yeah. like a he ain't Brad Pitt. We'll put it that way. For, yeah. you know, probably honestly, a very nice guy, but he ain't Brad yeah. Pitt. No, honestly, and, the first time we've seen a flaps in a while. Yeah. Um, and who saunters into her dance studio as their closing shop? But Benjamin, he was in town and he just couldn't help himself. He had to see her. Yeah. But she is kind of another gas moment. Benjamin is like, um, like seventeen. Yeah, it's. It, that's and, scary. Yeah. And we get kind of the big the big special effects moment of this movie where it's Brad Pitt as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And you're like it's a little it's 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 pretty stunning. I think it looks better than some of the de-aging in more recent movies. Yeah. Well, and I think what David Fincher is um excellent at is knowing the um limitations yeah. of the tech and like Absolutely. you know because like he, you look at like a lot of like the special effects sequences they're often shot at night or it's very foggy like he knows how to like shoot things perfectly and when he can't get them to the standards he needs to reach mm-hmm. he can obscure them to the point where it appears like what you do see appears perfect yeah yeah he she's a little shocked she's like why did you do this why did you come here he briefly meets his daughter but he tells her where he's staying and she goes to visit him at his hotel they make love one final time i think it's really really important too that he shows her body Mm -hmm. as an older we've seen her body yeah as a 20 year old like dancer body now we're Mm -hmm. seeing her as like a 50 something person's body not you know nothing nothing wrong or anything like that but it's just kind of the difference is aging it's just aging she's aging yeah Yeah. that's just life yeah it's just life and so it's i think it's like very purposeful that they do that to kind of show mm-hmm. the differences, kind of show where they're at. And then you get the music swells and they say goodnight to each other one last time. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's the last time they, that's the last time they're together because they age and age and age. Her husband dies. She's now an elderly woman and she gets a call from the house and they discovered this like kid living on the streets. He's like 10 and it's him and they're and the guy's like you know doctor examine him and like he's a kid but he has like full-on dementia because he's old he has dementia and it's and it's like (laughs) the last 20 minutes of this movie is like like the grim (laughs) it's so grim i hate yeah i mean i don't hate it but it's it's like it's it's, difficult to watch she ages she moves into the old folks house that we've been and it's like, oh god, life. Like, you know, it's like, like uh this sucks. Oh, we saw her as like a a twelve a two a twelve year old, a seven year old here. And now we see her as a seventy five year old here. Yep. And she takes care of him as he gets younger and younger. But he we know he is he's actually older and dying. Yeah. We know that. And they get that. Adam Neiman in the mind games, he's hard on this movie. 
he does really? not like yeah he get out of here Adam. He, yeah i i don't know I, I think this movie kind of like if it strikes a chord in you the wrong way it really strikes a chord in you the wrong way i think mm-hmm. and i think and i think he thinks that fincher is doing battle with kind of eric roth's hollywood sentimentalism which i i think fincher takes it over completely and that stuff is washed away by the incredible melancholy mm-hmm. well and i feel like any sentimentalism in this movie feels earned yeah i agree because yeah because yeah life has sentimental moments just as much as it has like and i think like i think people you know um the more modern we've gotten i think people have difficulty with these kind of themes they have mm-hmm. difficulty with hard on the sleeve kind of stuff. They have difficulty with like the moments of life stuff. Like we live in the kind of Joss Whedon Marvel world of yeah, I think we can fly now. Like irony. Yeah. This movie is unironic. Mm-hmm. That's a, like an like you know it, it's not meta. There's no self commentary. Oh god, yeah, it, it's earnest. That's what people have trouble with is mm-hmm. earnest art. I yeah. think, I think, because they makes them uncomfortable. I mean, we've done, speaking of two people who've done improv, like people would much prefer to make fun of things than they would to truly like take it on and like have to think about it or live in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's much easier to tell jokes about it, and that's what happened with this. This became kind of you know we said Benjamin Button disease and that kind of thing because. The overwhelming nature of this film is difficult, I think, mm-hmm. to take at face value, because that makes you think about, frankly, yourself, your family, your friends. Yeah, what you've done with your life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And but we get this. He does kind of he says the moment where he's she's walking with him down the street. and She gives him a little kiss mm-hmm. when he's like three is like he's like, I don't, he's like, I don't care. Like, that's emotional. That's that is an emotional tidal wave to see what they've gone through to have it beat out of that. And then I like she's holding him as a baby and he dies in her arms. And it's like, oh, my God. Well, and they do that thing where like everyone talks about when like a baby like, yeah. I don't know if like people said this when Hadley was born, but I feel like I remember when uh, one of my younger cousins, Joshua, was born. Um, They. uh talk about how like you know the first like week of a baby's life is like forgetting all the memories of the past life or whatever yeah. and they have kind of like a mirror sequence where like i think they say that there was this moment where he realized he remembered everything and then yeah. he just felt, and it's just such a good such a strong his life flashed before his eyes but as a baby and God. it's like yeah it's so it's much. it's really fucking powerful yeah and then they cut back to the hospital diary's over mm-hmm. and the emergency bell start ringing because the hurricanes were really hitting and her daughter simply his daughter simply goes I wish I'd known him but then she gets mm-hmm. pulled out of the room to see what's going on Daisy says goodnight one last time hummingbird shows up outside Daisy dies camera pulls out of the room one thing I noticed here again on this screening he doesn't usually mm-hmm. do this a lot he shoots through doorways, opening and closing, pulling and pushing forward, and having Benjamin on the outside of doorways often in this movie. It's a visual motif that he does. 
and it's symbolizing exits and entrances. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, I mean, like, the same way that um, Scorsese does it at the end of Irishman. In Scorsese's version of this movie, which is the Irishman. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it just shows the mindsets, the difference in their mindsets. Yeah. But, you know, they're very similar movies. Well, like, yeah, it's so funny because, like, Irishman is totally like the um, the glass half empty version of this film. Yeah. And I think the, it is not melancholy. It's just a straight up like. This is bad. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah. well, and it's an example. Of Irish, uh, Irishman's like an example of like a wasted life. Like this is well, yeah. it's a, a wasted sinful life because Benjamin yeah. Button doesn't live in sin. That's true. Benjamin Button is a good man. Yeah, like I mean, that's the difference too. <laughs> that, that is a, a big yeah. That a is a decent, huge... Benjamin Button is a decent human being. It's just mm. he has an extraordinary thing about him. Camera pulls away, and then Benjamin comes back in, and he does this recap of everyone he met who meant something to him and kind of what they brought to their life. And it's overwhelmingly emotional. They uh, – oh, because you hadn't seen Mahershala's character, Tizzy, or you hadn't seen Little Man O.T. You hadn't even seen Captain Mike in like two hours by this point, and they're back. And you're like – Oh, I cared about them too. But you know, by the time this is over, and then he ends with Daisy dancing. But then the ultimate capper. So earlier they showed that they modernized the train station. Mr. Ghetto's clock is removed and a dig fucking stupid digital clock is put in. The fuck out of here with that shit. They show the storage room of wherever the storage room is in New Orleans, as the hurricane is hitting, the room is flooding kind of the drape drops and the clock is sitting there being swarmed with water still ticking backwards cut to the music cut to the credits mm -hmm. and you're like i was crying i was yeah. crying describing it i mean it's just like well it's like it shows you like it's like this thing where like in some way it's like this movie's the clock in a way. Like someday this will be forgotten. Everything gets forgotten yeah. eventually. Everything, every every beautiful thing turns to dust. And Fincher is like not a director who thinks of his career. He thinks of it. He's not trying to create some like overreaching narrative. He's just trying mm -hmm. to like work on stuff. This movie came to him, and these these you know technology was at its right place. Eric Ross' script was at its right place. The decision to shoot in New Orleans post-Katrina, which adds a real element I don't think Baltimore could have done. Mm -hmm. in this well, thing. like there's like a whimsy to there's like a, uh, you know, there's like a twilight nature to New Orleans that Baltimore simply just doesn't. Um, yeah, I mean, if you or, or it, any major city for that matter in America. It, it, no, and New Orleans has it's like, I mean, I know people talk like this, but I've only been there once. And I was enchanted. I thought it was an amazing place. And well, what's interesting? What's although interesting? I do really, really love the joke and the killer. A town with a thousand restaurants with one menu. Very, very funny. Nailed it. Injury, yeah. Got him again. Nailed it, dude. Very, uh, <laughs> it like very it. funny. Very true. <laughs> but, but, uh, like, I think there's just something. I feel like. 
Yeah, New York, New Orleans is like this, you know, uniquely it's 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 like so unique from every other place in America. Mm-hmm. And the fable that Benjamin Button is telling or whatever the curious case of Benjamin Button is telling is so different from every other kind of American fable. There isn't like a I feel like so many American fables, the ones I think about all the folk tales there's like a larger than life quality to them. Yeah. And this is a movie that is uh even it's, though there are larger than life elements, it's far more subdued. It's it's like the biggest movie you've ever seen about the, like the quietest moments, yeah. in its own way. And boy, extraordinary! So this one was originally set for release in May of two thousand eight. Got pushed to November of two thousand eight. Then finally, December twenty fifth mm-hmm. of two thousand eight. Now I remember I spent Christmas that year. I went to France. So I was going through some personal things and I wanted to have an escape. So I mm. put a bunch of airfare on a credit card that I shouldn't have. And I went to France with my brother. Mm. The f- French subway tunnels, which have their own magical quality if you've ever been there. Oh, yeah. Every stop you passed, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett's faces or up for the cure this is what they're advertising and i'll never forget that because i didn't see it at the didn't see it i actually only saw it on video i didn't see it theatrically and i hope there's a revival screening at some point that i can go to because i really want to see it in the theater but i missed it and i kind of chalked it up like i think a lot of people did to be kind of like oscar bait i feel that i feel like i saw uh yeah because i didn't see this movie in theaters i think i saw it like on my laptop or something in high school and i remember having the same like uh feelings a little bit perhaps yeah and so it was an interesting thing and when i finally saw it again i was going through some stuff it clearly struck me in a profound way and i watched it many many times once i got it on video but benjamin button as we mentioned released on december 25th of 2008 the final budget was somewhere between 150 and 167 million dollars to make this movie it's a big big movie it ended up making a worldwide total of 335.8 million so this is a this is a blockbuster it's a big movie yeah you People know watched it always shape and form made uh, 127 in the u.s and 208 in for in international markets um the movie has a 71 percent on rotten tomatoes again Crazy. i think that i think this movie very divisive film mm-hmm. and consensus curious case of Benjamin Button is epic fantasy tale with rich storytelling backed by uh, fantastic performances. Um, mm. Critics kind of all over the place. A.O. Scott, New York times curious case of Benjamin Button more than two and a half hours long sighs with longing and simmers with intrigue while investigating the philosophical conundrums and emotional paradoxes of its protagonist condition in a spirit that moves more to Jorge Luis Borges than to F. Scott Fitzgerald. That actually, yeah, that's a very apt. Yeah, this does feel very Borgesian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, continuing, building on the advances of pioneers like Spielberg, Peter Jackson, and Zemeckis, Finster Fincher has added a dimension of delicacy and grace to digital filmmaking. While it stands in the shoulders of breakthroughs like Minority Report, The Lord of the Rings, and Forrest Gump, Benjamin Button may be the most dazzling such hybrid yet, precisely because it is the subtlest. At the same time, like any... At the same time, like any other love, like any movie, it is shadowed by disappointment and faded 
to end. Mm. He's a very, he's very, he's a good writer. Yeah. On the other hand, Peter Bradshaw of the Guardian called it 166 minutes of twee tedium. <laughs> James Christopher Times called it a tedious marathon of smoke and mirrors. In terms of basic requirements of three real drama, the film lacks substance, credibility, a decent script, and characters you might actually care about. You know, I kind of uh, I understand where they're coming from in the sense that, like, when you watch this movie initially, it does feel kind of like. Like there were moments, for example, where I'm like, I would watch and it was like, oh, it just feels like I'm watching just a string of things happen. Mm-hmm. But and like, there's no like, um, you know, occasionally there's like these big moments, but like. Uh, there's like a matter of fact quality that I think will be off putting to some people, but I think that this also- movie is showing the beauty of those matter of fact things. And I also don't feel the movie is hugely dramatic. Like that's an yeah. interesting part of it too mm-hmm. is that it doesn't actually play like a movie it actually kind of plays a bit more like life mm-hmm. in its own way because it isn't like there's no question of like what's going to happen to benjamin he's going yeah, to you know. die you know some things are going to happen but it's like he's not going to not going to save the world he's mm-hmm. not you know he's not going to like get involved in like corporate intrigue or yeah he doesn't yeah he doesn't like uh, end up on a mission with the british spy or whatever yeah like, yeah there's none of that kind of stuff it, it it's it's about a life living life and kind of the frankly the melancholia of life lived yeah the most interesting review is a negative review and it's from roger ebert who gave it two and a half stars he called it a splendidly made film based on a profoundly mistaken premise the movie's premise devalues any relationship makes futile any friendship or romance and spits not into the face of destiny but backward into the maw of time very interesting now we all know roger ebert was having his own health problems during this Mm -hmm. time period he felt synecdoche new york was a closer variation on life and death that he was looking at things and also the tree of life he said the Mm -hmm. same thing similar things about I don't think this is my own interpretation. This is nothing. There's no facts here. I don't think this made him comfortable in his illness. Mm. This movie. I don't think That's it's fair. what he wanted. I don't think it's what he wanted to think or believe. That life is fleeting. It's moment by moment, then you die. That there's no greater wonder to that. I guess. Well, and I guess and like to what I reply is, isn't that wonderful enough that you get this opportunity just to have this brief moment? Well, that's the beauty of Benjamin is he like yeah. live, loves every minute of his life. Like, he yeah. like he's and he's like thankful for it. Well, and, and, and the thing that if you philosophically are on the same bent, this movie will ring quite true for you. Is yeah, basically what I was getting. at. I don't think Roger Ebert was in that philosophical place. I think, yeah oh totally well and i think like yeah if i were ebert maybe like it's like you see that there is something super grim about like uh for me like the thing that's like darkest is like the clock that beautiful clock getting lost in the flood yeah. and it's never gonna be seen ever again and no one wants to be that clock no one wants to be this like for the tugboat sinking into the briny deaths no one wants to be forgotten no one wants to be left in yeah. the dust but uh 
I think it's like once you accept that that's inevitable, then there's beauty. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's kind of zen, really. And it well, and it makes beauty. you and it and it makes you realize like, oh, I have a life. I better fucking live it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and life is a, and to someone like David Fincher, life is not about kind of what you leave behind. It's the process of making these films. It's not the finished. He's not thinking about what's going to be written in a biography after he's dead. He's thinking about, wow, can you believe we pulled that off in those mm-hmm. weeks in New Orleans, de-aging Brad Pitt and aging him and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But Curious Case of Benjamin Button was nominated for 13 Academy Awards. So everyone kind of got it that it yeah. was an extraordinary achievement, even if you didn't think it was the achievement. I think that was mm-hmm. the year Slumdog Millionaire won everything. Mm, that's Benjamin an interesting Button movie was nominated for best visual effects best sound mixing best original score best makeup best film editing best costume design best cinematography who we haven't mentioned his name yet but claudio miranda who shot the gorgeous top gun maverick also shot this one and mm. he was a gaffer on fight club another oh. working your way up through the system also this was the last year where the uh oscars were just uh five best pictures Oh, yeah, you're right, because this was, I think, the Dark Knight year. Yeah, it was the Dark Knight year, too. Yeah. Well, it's Which like, Dark Knight yeah, was nominated, yeah. It's it's like the reader was nominated and not the Dark Knight? I don't, yeah. Tell that, to, tell that to Chris Nolan. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we should also give a big shout-out. Uh, best costume designer was Jacqueline West. The costumes in this movie. I mean, every aspect of this movie. Yeah. Everyone is playing at a 10 out of 10 A game. Uh, best art direction, art designer was Donald Graham Burt who we've mentioned on the Zodiac episode, a highly skilled production designer. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Eric Roth and Robin Swickard. It was mm-hmm. nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Taraji B. Henson. Not nominated for Best Actress. Kate Blanchett was not nominated. Of course, uh, Brad Pitt was nominated for Best Actor. David Fincher was nominated for Best Director. And it was nominated for Best Picture. It won three. It won for Best Art Direction. It won for best makeup, and it won very deservingly so for best visual effects. I've, I was monitoring these things and making my own lists. I would have oh, given, yeah. I would have given it best picture and best director, mm-hmm. even if no one had been nominated. Too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think you know. In retrospect, I think in that year, yeah, um, his achievement as a director, what they accomplished the how tonal its tone it's just the entire thing and it yeah it's a pretty it's a miraculous film now i think it might be his magnum opus it's a really important film here's the deal though let's talk about to close this thing out with where does this fit in fincher like our job or fake job or whatever you want to call this is (laughs) to kind of come up with these connections and kind of work on these kind of it's not David Fincher's job, but we can do it as fans and yeah. as as fans. This movie's different. Mm-hmm. Certainly does not seem like the guy who did Fight Club or even the game or something like that. It feels yeah. like a totally different thing in every way, shape, and form. I know that threw a lot of people when it came out. Everyone was like, "What? what is the deal with this? Is he selling out to make it good to win an Oscar? This How is this selling were, out? I don't talks. even... So on yeah. the commentary track... He discusses that 
when they were putting this movie together, it was a similar time period when um, his father passed away. Yeah. And to me, this is why he made this movie. He wanted the technical challenges. He wanted to work with Brad Pitt again because they're buds. But I also think he wanted to work through his feelings on life and death. Mm -hmm. He would never say that because he doesn't do that kind of thing. He would give you a smart ass response. Yeah. You know about it. But I think his heart of hearts. I don't think you make a movie that your dad wrote as a hobby into a big, gigantic Netflix movie 10 years after your dad has passed away if you don't have a strong relationship with your father. I just don't. I think he, and I think it, it, like it does with anyone, it's hurt. It hurt to lose someone close to him. And I think he wanted to express that in a movie. And everyone feels that. It's a universal feeling. You just can't escape it. So, well, it seems odd. I don't think it's odd at all for him to make this movie. It still to this day stands kind of as an anomaly because he went back to, you know, I mean, he did the social network is next. And then the girl with the dragon tattoo feels like, you know, it's right up his alley. But I think the girl with the dragon tattoo is just as lonely of a movie as this one is. Oh, in its sure. own way. I, you know? I, I feel like, I feel like in some ways, um, this movie shares a lot of DNA with Zodiac. Yeah. Like, I think that's like, kind of like for me, like the movie, I feel like these, both of these movies kind of go hand in hand. Well, they're both very this... existential movies. Mm -hmm. You know, these is a, you know, their hunt for answers and the acceptance that there are none. Yeah. You know, coming, and, coming to grips with and what for the you can't understand. And for the ultimate control freak, him reconciling that. You know, I, I would love to talk to him and get him. I, I'd love to talk to him for many, many reasons. Everyone oh, yeah. knows he's like my hero, but <laughs> he's a brain worth picking. But I would love to like see what he was like if you caught him off guard and he wasn't. And you said, what what's he like as a vulnerable man? And I think he is a very like I think because he's not. He's not some evil guy lurking in the shadows. I think he's a very like emotional, warm guy. It's just he makes these movies that are like these like well-oiled machines and he comes off in his interviews a little snarky. But I also was reading he doesn't want to speak for the movie. He hates the interview process. He doesn't feel comfortable with it. And when I've seen him in person, the way he sits, he doesn't sit like one of those guys who's like used to like the talk show chair. He kind of like sits a little hunched over. It's like he didn't want to be there, you know, yeah. and I think. I think that yeah, I get. I think that this movie and Zodiac, you're right, really reveals a filmmaker who, on the surface, you know, we got the shoes salesman, we got the ad man, we got the slick operator. Yeah, it's got real depth. The impish, yeah, oh yeah, like behind yeah. the impish bomb thrower, behind the like, yeah, the, there yeah, is, yeah. that behind Tyler Durden, there is Benjamin Button. You know, yeah. in a sense. You know, he thinks he, I think he thinks he's Tyler Durden, but I think he might actually be Benjamin. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. <laughs> I think that's it. Wow. I don't know. Yeah. I think we've, uh, this is probably the most, uh, it's not our longest episode, but it's one of the most uh, in depth episodes I think we've ever done on a single uh, movie. And I think that that's, um, I think it's right. This movie, yeah. this movie's trying, this movie's, they're trying to hit a grand slam. They're trying to talk to us about life and death and everything in between in this movie <laughs> and how it doesn't matter what order it's in. It's mm -hmm. all kind of the same. Yep.
Hey, as to quote this movie, uh, a character in this film, we all end up in diapers. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. If you just think this movie is like a Forrest Gump ripoff, like Oscar, <laughs> Oscar made claptrap, and you sat here for two and a half hours with us. Just like, angry. You're just just angry and screaming at us like, these guys, these dorks, these guys are looking at this on the surface. They're total, like, wussy lamos. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> kick in with us at the Academy Podcast, Academy Academy Podcast at gmail.com or on X at the Academy. <laughs> Heard it on the X. Heard it on the X, yeah. Yeah, if, if you need, like, if you're just like, man, that that wasn't nearly... They weren't enough memes, and it wasn't ironic enough. <laughs> Tell yeah, us about the, it. The, bake, the bacon wasn't epic enough. You're saying, uh, yeah. You know what? I think that's a, that is the thing with this movie. It's like you can't meme it. No, and it's not epic bacon at all. <laughs> you can't. Like, yeah, you can't do like the, the button op- challenge. It's it's like completely the opposite of epic bacon. Yeah, <laughs> it See, really it is. Like um, muted hash browns. But speaking of Epic Bacon, next week, mm. 2014's The Equalizer is here. <laughs> uh, me thinks that's epic. Me thinks it's a very different film than the one we did dealt with this week. Um, Equalizer, dude, was on Stars. Not anymore. Rude. 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 Rude Gotta stars. rent it. Gotta rent, yep. it. Gotta uh, rent it. Oh, well. But it's also on disc and all the other things. I'm pumped for it, man. I'm so excited to watch The Equalizer. I might watch it tonight. I think it's a, I think it's going to be a blast. I, I have a prediction. The Equalizer series is Antoine Fuqua's magnum opus. Prediction. Ooh. Sight unseen. To quote my father, sight unseen. Interesting. I I I think that's a good. I'll I'll put a I'll put some chips on that. Yeah. Week after that is our annual Christmas episode. Now, lat two couple years ago, we had a Christmas pick'em. We did Avatar. Last year, guess what we're doing this year? That's right, folks. Our man Ridley Scott is back. We're co- yes. going to be talking Napoleon in two weeks. We have not seen it yet. We're going to go together, probably hold hands during the screening. I mean, yep. you know, it's up whole there. Time. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna, yeah. I'm going to get us tickets. We're going to go. We're going to see it at the newly refurbished Quentin Tarantino-owned Vista Theater. Is where we're going to go see it in 70 millimeter. Ooh. Ooh. So get it in, folks, because we're going to probably be spoiling it. If you can spoil Napoleon's story. <laughs> I saw somebody like went to like, we we got a descendant of Napoleon's review of the movie. Weird. Who cares? Who gives yeah, a shit? weird. It's like 200 years ago. Like 200 years ago, man. Like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like. It, I don't. It's a movie. It's not a document. Watch. Go watch not, a not fucking like Ken getting, Burns film, got, jerk. Like, now that you got Napoleon's son to tell the truth, like this is what they did wrong. It's like some guy who like never met, like clearly yeah. never met Napoleon. Like who it's like, shit? yeah, like the a great time seven grandkid. It's yeah, fine. yeah. It's like ugh, whatever. Yeah, get out of here. Yeah, what does like the descendant of Jesus Christ think of the Passion of the Christ? Like, yeah, what is? <laughs> yeah, what is? Uh, yeah, what is a loved descendant? It. Loved it. <laughs> yeah, loved ten, it. Ten. Ten, 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 baby. Five oh. smiles. Yeah, five smiles. Anyway, <laughs> we'll be covering Napoleon. We are heading into the end of the year here. We are mm-hmm. heading into. I think we are closing in on the final stretch on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But who knows? We'll see. Next week is mm-hmm. the Equalizer. Who? Okay. Go live your life. Watch the sunset. For Patrick, I'm Don. We'll see you next week on the Academy Academy. 
Hey, uh, Don, there's this new restaurant that opened up. Uh, it's the curious case of uh, Benjamin's Beignets. Uh, <laughs> Sounds crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could have done it. They could have done that. They could have wasted opportunity. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, like I said, like, you know, New Orleans, uh, a thousand restaurants, one menu. I went to Antoine's, one of the more famous restaurants in New Orleans, and my dad knew like the owners or something. They took us on a tour because it's like a hundred year old restaurant. They took us in this back alley and they were like, Brad comes here and that's where he parks his motorcycle. Mm. I was like, oh, Brad's riding around a motorcycle in New Orleans, just like Benjamin Butt. (laughs) (laughs) He's really, it is true. He is Benjamin Butt. He is. (laughs) He's a Benjamin Button in reverse. (laughs) 